How should fantasy players manage bullpens when big league teams manage bullpens in so many different ways? I'll ask bullpens expert Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 9th. It's show number 32 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing fantasy bullpen management, the fantasy season's first half in general, some particular closers, and some slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps among closers. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Clayton Kershaw, Sixto Sanchez, and Rowdy Tellez. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Vidal Brujan, Michael Pineda, Yasmani Grandal, and of course our weekly Edward Olivares update. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the frequent flyer. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Pittsburgh first baseman Mason Martin. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about rolling out the barrels. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're hitting the all-star break. No better time to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, Where does this uh, podcast find you? I am in my office here in Cincinnati. How many leagues are you playing this year, Doug? I am in six, which is um, more than probably I've ever done. I know there's a lot of people who do 20, 30. Six seems uh, too many for me. What kind of formats are they? They're all different, and maybe that's why it feels uh, a little bit too much for me. I, I've, um, you know, I get invited sometimes to different NFBC formats, and I'm not used to doing those. And I, the last couple of years, I've decided I'm going to jump in and try some of that. And that's that's three of my six are different NFBC formats run by you know friends of mine in the industry. So, uh, great fantasy baseball invitational, Raz Slam, those kinds of things. Raz Slam, um, TGFBI, and then there's a um, Arizona Folly Speakers um, Draft Champions League that I'm in, um, and those are the three NFPCs that I'm doing. But they're all three different formats, right. so um, we sort of uh, figured out on the fly. The Raz Slam one is a little better in the sense that there's not a lot of moves to be made. You make your draft. I think there was two transaction periods, and then you just let her fly from there and see what happens. Yeah, that team is my worst team. I can't <laughs> do anything about it. I have uh, like Mike Trout and uh, George Springer were two two of my top three picks, and you know they've been dead all season. Although Springer's back now, but you yeah. know, the way it goes. And then, of course, you and I are both in the American League Tout Wars draft. You're in a labor draft. Is that also the American League? Um, nope, that one's National League. So 
those are um, those redraft only leagues are are so deep, you know, in in who you have to roster with injuries and everything. It's getting it's almost getting comical this year. I think in, in some of them. I've had some discussions here on the podcast over this season about whether leagues should be looking at adjusting their roster requirements because in only leagues in particular, it's essentially impossible to find a replacement hitter in the free agent pool until you know some minor league guy gets called up. And in leagues like ours where you're allowed to draft them early, sometimes they're not even available or they may have been kept on reserve right from the start of the year. Where do you sit on the idea of fantasy baseball leagues needing to consider adjusting their roster structures to reflect the change in Major League Baseball's roster structures with way more pitchers and way fewer hitters than there used to be even 15 years ago. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, actually something I advocate for. I think there are, you know, I um, in, in and I'll just use this as an example, in, in labor, in the National League, no DH, um, I spend typically 230 out of my $260 on hitters because I have to make sure that I'm getting enough at bats, you know, in order to weather an entire season. And, you know, there's no help on the waiver wire in, in, in you know, NL only even 12 um, league teams. So um, I take my chances with pitching. I cycle through pitching like crazy. I hope I pick up a couple closers and, and cobble my way through. But there is no way I'm going to let myself have four dead roster spots on hitting because the season is over. And, of course, if you lose a Mike Trout or somebody like that, as you mentioned, in one of your leagues, you're really dead in the water because there's no, in addition to not being able to replace any player in particular, you lose that first-round guy and you're just, you might as well just fold your fold your hand and uh, throw in. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the problem with uh, with the best best ball because um, you just don't have the ability to make any moves or do anything about it. <laughs> in, and in, in that sense, in both cases, you have nothing you can do about it because while theoretically you can make a move in a, in a single-league tout-type format, you really can't. I mean, you can put uh, Mike Trout on the DL and grab whatever outfielder is available in the free agent pool, but that's essentially like not making a move. Yeah, you would have to make some kind of trade. I I typically don't end up having a Mike Trout because I try to spread the risk. You know, once once we're talking about the fact that you can't find replacements, you really want to spread it out so that, you know, I'd rather have a bunch of $16, $17 guys than, a you know, a $45 guy who goes out. And then, you know, I got a $1 guy and the replacement, you know. So that's that's sort of the way I look at that, that kind of that is how you ran your Tout Wars draft this year. I noticed that you stayed out of the heavy bidding and then kind of commanded the mid-game and the end-game, and you came out of it with a roster that looked like it was going to be really hard to beat, frankly, and it has not been really hard to beat. Was that just injuries that have piled up? Um, actually, um, the hitting did, did almost exactly what I thought it would. On the pitching side, um, Kirby Yates, bad pick, you know, cost me money. Um, my other, my, my lesser closers, uh, Rafael Montero, who for a moment I thought, well, that was a good pickup. No, that was a bad pick. Um, I got, I got Ryu for, which I thought was good for the money, but, um, you know, not as good as, as, as I thought he'd be. I got Scooble and I got, um, Odorizzi and I, I got rid of them right at the moment that they started not being terrible. But I already had like a five and a half ERA by then and just sort of had to figure out what to do about, you know, 
the mess that I created on the pitching side. And at this point, I'm just, you know, there's no innings limit. So I'm kind of experimenting for next, you know, I'm out of it for this year. I'm kind of experimenting it for next year, um, whether I can put together a pitching staff of all relievers and see how that goes. And so I'm sort of messing around with that and looking at what that looks like and how it goes week to week. Mike Gianella did that last year when he seemed to be the only guy in the league that knew that they had removed the yeah. index limit because nobody told anybody. And he just happened to reread the Constitution the night before the draft. And he, hey, I could try this. Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a unfortunate byproduct of the way that the hitting pitching things are working in, in Tout and other single league formats is that more and more uh fantasy managers are going to look at the possibility of doing just what you're talking about, which is really going to distort the game. And if what we're trying to do is be a model for people out in the, in the wilderness to look at and say, oh, here's a strategy that can work. If you have a no innings limit set up in our league, that's not matched by a no innings limit in most other leagues, all of a sudden the, uh, the ability to reflect what might be interesting to those uh, players out in the out in the fantasy uh, baseball world really is reduced quite a lot. It's interesting, especially if three or four uh, of the managers try it, but it ceases to be super reflective. Yeah, I would add uh, I would add two pitchers instead of nine. I'd make it eleven, and I'd take two hitters away. I think slot wise, and I think that would change everything. You know, to be more balanced, which is I think what you know we should do. But again. If we're trying to reflect what's out there, you know, nowadays um, NFBC kind of dominates and you need them to make that kind of change, I think, for these kind of leagues to do the same. How do you feel about the idea, though, that uh, experts leagues like Tout and Labor, especially Tout, which kind of has in its founding ethos the idea that we need to lead the industry forward into new ideas, for example, on base percentage, uh, instead of batting average, which I think is a really good idea and, and long overdue in many leagues, as well as the, the idea that you can have a swingman slot, which you can bounce back and forth. I don't think that's been as impactful as they might have thought, but these are things that were sort of proposed at Tout Wars and then gradually found a footing out there in the wild. Uh, but it seems like uh, we're not doing enough of that, or maybe we could be doing more of it is a better way to put it. I think the way that Tout has been doing that is by expanding the number and types of leagues that they have. So instead of just have, I mean, I remember when Tout was just one AL only 12 team league and one NL only, you know, and now yeah. I, I don't know how many leagues there are, but there's, there's all kinds of different, there's something for everybody, you know, in Tout. And so I think that's how they're, they're doing these kinds of things. But I definitely would, you know, be a proponent of two more pitchers and two fewer hitters you know, to reflect the current reality of, of baseball rosters as opposed to the 1980s uh, reality. Yeah, we were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago. I've talked about this a lot with various uh, guests here on the podcast. And uh, one of the proposals that I like is four outfielders, which we already have in tout because they just made one of the uh, the extra position, that swing position, which everybody uses for a hitter anyway, so it's just one less outfielder. But I wonder why we couldn't get by with just one spare infielder instead of a spare corner and a spare middle. And if you, and then take away that swingman position and make it a make it another pitcher, and all of a sudden you are getting closer to that thirteen twelve kind of balance that major league teams are all using, and we know that. So uh, I, I think that's something that 
the good thing about Tout Wars, it's fairly democratic. And at the end of the season, they invite us to say, what do you, what ideas would you like to float? And I think I'm going to float that idea again this year, but I don't know uh, whether or not it'll go over. There's a lot of tradition to, to overcome in these things. No, but I think that's right. XFL, for people who don't know, it's a very deep, very involved keeper league. You've won it in the past. Where are you in that cycle of build and, and compete, and how is your team doing this year? I'm in the middle of the winning cycle. I won the last two years, and I'm in second place right now. And it's very frustrating to be in second place, to be honest, because uh, I have accumulated just about every great player you can have. And for some reason, I'm, I'm struggling on the pitching side. Um, and it's not really due to injuries. It's due to ineffectiveness of certain pitchers like um, – you know, Kenta Maeda has been frustrating and Kyle um, Hendricks has been frustrating. And I traded for Garrett Cole at the beginning of June. And since then, he's been terrible. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I have Aaron Nola, who's the metrics are terrific, but then he gives up a three-run bomb every single game. So I'm in second. I'm very frustrated, but uh, I got half a season to figure it out. And that's the thing. We, we talk at the All-Star break, we're roughly halfway through the year, and it's easy to get despondent about teams that are actually, you know, not that far away from being good. I mean, you mentioned Kenta Maeda. Maybe whatever's been bothering him, they figure it out, and all of a sudden he's good again. Certainly Garrett Cole has the pedigree that you should be satisfied about that. How did you build the the competitive team that you have and how long do you think you're going to be able to maintain it before you have to rejoin the rebuilding cycle? Well, I'm uh, so I'm in year three of the, of the winning side of it. I think I can go this year and maybe another year and then we'll see. I mean, it, you know, the, we, our salaries increase um, by five every single year, unless you got them when they were in the minors and hadn't played in the majors at all. Um, and so then, then it increases by, by three once they hit the majors. So, you know, my guy, my players are mostly guys like I have both, uh, for instance, I have both uh, Tatis Jr. and Acuna Jr., you know, and they're both relatively cheap. So I think I can win, you know, or at least I can compete, um, you know, for another couple of years. But, um, you know, building to that, it took probably four years to do that. And that, you know, that's four years of not winning, <laughs> which is a long time to just, you know, not win. So it's uh, it's tricky. And, and I think people uh, want to jump from building to winning too quickly and often miss that winning cycle altogether. So it, it, you have to be patient with it, too. I mentioned how deep that league is. Uh, it, it obliges you, if you want to build, to be competitive and to be a competitive builder, to really get down into the weeds because you guys have very, very long minor league lists and it's not like you sit around and wait for a Wander Franco to show up more or less fully fledged and then and then there's a bit of a war to get him to maneuver for position but you guys are drafting guys in single a high school you're drafting japanese guys who nobody's ever heard of all that kind of stuff uh, how labor intensive is all of that and what do you use for sources and what do you use to calibrate which of these types of players uh, should be targeted yeah so um so i actually have a high school player i have uh, Jaden fielder who is a Prince Fielder's son, who's a junior in high school. <laughs> so just to give you an idea. But um, no, I mean, you just kind of look at everywhere and at everything. I spend a lot of time, um, I have a subscription to Baseball America and read that, obviously. I look at all the 
you know, there's it's interesting. Um, HQ has has long had a good um, group of people ever since uh, Derek McAmey, you know, back in the day, um, putting together materials to help you select between different minor league players for fantasy applications. Um, but there has been an explosion of, of, of looking at minor leaguers um, across fantasy baseball in the last five or six years, which has made it a lot easier, honestly. Um, the Japanese stuff is uh, there's probably two or three people I know who know about that. Um, but, you know, there's been um, there's a lot more access than there used to be. I mean, I can go online and get a translation and find out, you know, who's pitching or playing well in, in Japanese leagues myself. So it just takes effort. But uh, I kind of enjoy that that part of it. I mean, that's uh, kind of an outcropping of doing all the years on a fall league stuff that we've always done, which are mostly just all the blue chip uh, minor leaguers collected in one place. So now, um, you know, you, it's an outcropping from that. And, and it kind of goes from there. But you're right in the sense that if you wait until someone's in double or triple A, you've missed a chance. Yeah. Of course, every so often a guy will just come out of nowhere in double A and all of a sudden show up, which might pique your interest on a guy that at, at single A or high A was not interesting to the student body, but I imagine that's relatively unusual to have happen. Uh, the other thing about the XFL that probably helps in the building process is, at least my perception is, there's a lot of trading in that league that helps because there's the, the whole building versus competing angle that can be exploited by both sides in that equation. How advantageous is it to be able to trade so liberally compared to, say, Tout Wars, where you try to get a trade through and it's it's often very difficult because it's uh, short-term, nobody wants to be the guy who got beat in a trade. There's a lot of disadvantages to, to, to trying to make your way by trading in Tout that it doesn't seem you have an XFL. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I make as many trades as anybody else in the league, probably more than, than almost everyone. And it creates a lot of consternation from uh, league mates who are, you know, patiently building, but don't like to see, you know, dumping or people who are kind of giving up this season in hopes of having a better season a few years from now. And I think they hate both ends of it. You know, if you're in the, if I'm, if I'm dumping, you know, here I, I have this roster that might get me, you know, eighth place out of 15 teams. I don't care about that. I, will, I would rather come in 15th and get players that I can keep that will build towards the future. Well, that's upsetting to teams that are in first, second, third, that then have their part of the, you know, winnings shuffled by a trade I might make. So they're frustrated at that end. And then they're frustrated at the other end. If I'm in first and I have all these great players and they're still like third or fourth, but haven't made those trades. So you're almost forced into doing it, I think. And um, I understand the frustration of teams that aren't doing it, but I also understand why they keep coming in fourth. <laughs> this is a bone of contention in a lot of keeper leagues, not at the expert level like you guys. I mean, we would expect that because of the uh, way that you play and the experience you have in playing and the purpose that you have in playing in leagues like this, that you're, you're going to be more cold-blooded, shall I say, about making your deals just because you want to improve your team in the way that you th see fit. But in home leagues and, and those kinds of leagues, the whole idea of dumping can really destroy a league. If somebody gets his nose out of joint and then two or three guys join him and they say, this dumping sucks, and they all leave, and now you're 12-team leagues, a 9-team league, and you got to go scramble around for, for new participants. How, do, how can you 
square that circle for non-expert leagues where guys are just in it to have fun, where you inevitably seem to end up with sharks and minnows? Well, we have that problem, even in this league. I mean, we have um, constant requests for rule changes and, um, you know, and consider those rule changes. And typically, after a lot of rumination, end up not having, you know, rule changes. But um, this year, um, you know, one of one of the founding members um, proposed rule changes right right in the last couple of weeks and said, this is enough of this. We need to we need to tamp down and make it harder to make these kinds of transactions. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's going anywhere, but you never know. I mean, you know, we don't change rules in the middle of the season or not like the spider t- uh, attack right. you know, thing. But but, you know, it does change. You know, you kind of look at these things cyclically over a, a series of years. And so if you have a rule change in the middle of, of that, you know, it can alter your, your plan. And so, I, you know, it's difficult, but there is a lot of consternation over the different philosophies that players have in this, even in this expert league. So I, I, I don't think it's that different from, um, you know, from home leagues in that sense. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Doug Dennis from BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, the first half is actually over. I talked about this last week. We hit the 81 game mark more or less last weekend. Uh, what do you think have been fantasy baseball's most unexpected stories from the first half? Well, I certainly didn't expect um, the spider tack thing to explode the way that it did at the beginning of June. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even know. Like, I guess you could say Trevor Bauer and Garrett Cole, you know, we kind of knew about. Um, and, and we suspect, you know, people on the Astros and we suspect people on the Dodgers. Um, but we don't really know, you know, who is and who isn't. And, you know, it's playing out in real time. So that's been that's been interesting and frustrating. I think the injuries have been greater than people anticipated, although, you know, there's people online who have talked about inj- beating the injuries drum um, all winter. So if they weren't paying attention, you know, I, I think that they're probably getting popped by that. Um, those are probably the two biggest storylines to me. What did you think of the All-Star Game results, the uh, p- players who were voted in? You know, I don't really pay a lot of attention to that. I'm very excited this year. I mean, I typically don't even, for me, I, it's, I'm like a player who goes fishing. I, I, it's like, thank God I get a break, you know? Yeah. Um, but this year I'm probably going to pay attention. if not just because of um, Shohei Otani. I just think that, that seeing him do the things he's been doing this year and seeing him in, in the all-star format is exciting. So I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention to that. Two of the more surprising All-Stars are from your hometown team and my favorite team, the Cincinnati Reds. How real do you think the performances are of Nick Castellanos and especially Jesse Winker? I think Nick Castellanos is exactly what he's been. I mean, he he hits, and he hits um, not just for power. He hits for, for average. He's situational hitting is good. I mean, he's just a great hitter. I I don't think he feels worth a darn, though, and it's difficult to have two fielding challenged uh, outfielders in the corners if you're, you know, you almost need to have, um, I don't know, Andrew Jones in center with those two guys, but they both hit. Winker, Winker's much more of an on-base guy than, um, than Castellanos, and his power has surprised me this year. I did not, I, I mean, I thought he would hit um, when healthy, but, and he's had some injury issues in past years. He hasn't had that problem this year. But his um, 
but he's had power this year and that's been exciting and surprising. And really those two guys have driven any success the Reds have had because last year they couldn't hit at all as a team. Um, and this year the team is doing really well at scoring runs. So it's interesting from year to year where the same lineup produces different results. How surprised were you about Adam Frazier making the NL team? It's not that he's undeserving based on his play. I, I looked him up, and he's fourth in uh, FWAR, the uh, war that's figured out by Fangraphs, among National League second basemen, and he's pretty close behind Max Muncie, Jake Cronenworth, and Ozzie Albies. But he plays on such an unheralded, really not good team, and uh, they don't get a lot of national TV exposure. Is this just a case of... Baseball fans getting something at least partly right, or was there just some big influx of Pirates fans trying to tilt the tilt the game a little? I don't know the answer to that, but I I was watching the Pirates um, Braves game last night, and um, and they were giving the Pirates fans credit for making this happen, and they thought he was deserving as well on the broadcast, which I just found kind of interesting because um, I wouldn't. If you said to me, you know, oh, Adam Frazier made the All-Star team, I'd say he did. Like, that's kind of, you know, wow. In, in what sport? Come up and see what he did, you know, like to, to get there. But, um, you know, it just sort of reflects a guy who's having a good first half. And you don't have to be on a first-place team to make it to the All-Star game. I'm kind of – I kind of like um, stories like that. I'm sure it'll be a thrill for, for him and his family and friends uh, for him to be there and you know, I, I, I'm as excited for those kind of personal stories as I am for the Shohei Otani. I just don't have to watch those. I can read the story and then go fish. Speaking of the uh, possibility of ballot box stuffing, uh, Toronto Blue Jays fans managed to get uh, four players into the mix, and three of them made the team. Uh, of course, Vladimir Guerrero is certainly very deserving, and uh, and Semyon, I think, is very deserving. But Teoscar Hernandez, by any measure, doesn't seem to be in the top rank of major league outfielders. He's having an okay year. Don't get me wrong. He missed some time. He's, he's an okay outfielder. He's hitting well, but certainly there are better options than him and frankly than Aaron Judge, given the, what's happened this year. Uh, what do you make of the ballot box efforts of a team like Toronto, which has basically an entire country to fall on, even though the country's population is less than, you know, greater LA? Well, that's what I picture. I picture some poor guy up on Hudson Bay, you know, voting for a Teoscar and then, uh, you know, getting his letter into the, you know, the little plane that flies off the lake and then, you know, lands in an actual town that then sends the letter in and it gets to the league office just in time. I mean, that's what I kind of think. <laughs> I don't know. The internet <laughs> may have changed some of that anyway. Yeah, that's my picture. I, I, some guy who's just at a, at a moose lodge and he fills it out. All, all blue jays, you know, and then sends it in. Right. Remember, you used to be able to do that, right? They, they, they would mail out the ballots and you'd fill in the little circles and, and then put it in, a, in the mail and you could send in 25 at a time, I think, back in those days. But, man, that was effort. That was like, uh, you know, the kind of election fixing that goes on, uh, according to some sources, all, all over the place. But now it's... Uh, you know, you click once a day and it takes you three seconds. And if you just remember to do it, I don't know. Do you think that the balance of getting the big stars into the game versus the guys who are playing the best at the time is about right? I think it's messy, but I kind of love it that way. I kind of love that Adam Frazier can be in the game and so can Shohei Otani. I think that's, 
I like it. I like it that way. I don't think it has to all be, you know, whoever is on their way to the Hall of Fame every darn year, you know, and I also don't think it should be whoever had their the hot first half only. I like that that you can kind of do it however you want. And, you know, and it's left to fans to who really care enough to vote to decide. And I kind of like that. too. Ray Murphy, Todd Zolan, and I will be going through the first half fantasy awards uh, on All-Star Tuesday. We're going to have a Baseball HQ Radio Roundtable edition. Uh, who would get your vote, do you think, for fantasy MVP this year? As oh, hitter? gosh. For fantasy MVP as a hitter? I don't know. I'll tell you who it is on on my teams. It's um it's Yuli Gurriel because I got him for almost nothing on every single team. I, he's on five of my six teams. He's, I, he's the guy I have on the most teams, and I got him almost for free on every one of them. I mean, it's just incredible, and he's having a good year. So he would be my he would be my personal guy for sure. How about uh, fantasy Cy Young? I think even though he was probably the first pitcher pick, the fact that DeGrom is doing, you know, historically great things, it has to be him, right? Like he's he's probably doubled the value that you had to pay, even though you had to pay a lot. So, I mean, it's uh, it's one of those Ricky Henderson kind of problems this year with him. And I don't know how the second half plays out, but for the first half, I don't know how you could do better than getting DeGrom, even if you made him the first pick especially since so many first picks on the hitting side have really fallen by the wayside. I could have picked DeGrom in TGFBI, and I thought about it, but I instead opted for the safe pick of Mookie Betts, who's, uh, last time I checked, was around a seventh rounder by dollar value at BaseballHQ.com. So uh, on the one hand, it seems like a guy like DeGrom is validating the expert advice that pitchers are as safe as hitters or perhaps even better in the early rounds. And then you look at all the other guys that aren't producing to that level. Aaron Nola, you mentioned, but there's lots of guys who went in the first and second round as pitchers who are really nowhere near delivering that kind of value. Yeah. I just think, um, you know, the distribution of hitters is like a, like a, like a, you know, a normal distribution. I feel like the distribution of pitches is like a two-hump camel with a gap in the middle. You know, it's just really good pitches and a lot of bad pitches. And you got to get them or you're going to be left, you know, behind. So, you know, if you get if you end up with Maeda and Nola, too bad. You know, sorry that happened, you know, but uh, you kind of have to try and get good pitchers. And if you got DeGrom, my God, like what a great year he's having. And what a great year you're probably having in all of the pitching categories, except saves, of course. But, gosh, what is it, 060 ERA at this point or something like that? Uh, and and in enough innings that he's going to actually support the ERA of a fantasy team. It's It's been a remarkable year for Jacob deGrom, that's for sure. When you look at the highest-ranking fantasy performers this year, Doug, who do you think is likeliest to have a big fall? Well, that's a good question, and I find that he's really hard to answer because, to me, the crystal ball is somebody who's going to get hurt. It isn't that, oh, it's just a flash in the pan. I mean, you know, it's been a good three months now, and, um, you know, they may not stay at that, you know, elite level the whole way through, but they're not going to completely fall off the map, you know, for three months either. So, typically, it's somebody who gets hurt, you know, and I I don't know who that person's going to be. I mean, who's who's the most injury-prone person, that guy probably is the one who will play the most. I mean, you know, it's just yeah. everything's different, and it's hard to, hard to, hard to, I mean, I know that you guys have to think about those kind of things, but I don't ever think about it that way. I just sort of think about who's playing, you know, well at 
the time and um, and try to get those guys. Which low performer so far disappointment, which we could say, do you think might uh, have the biggest jump up? Who's the underperformer that you like the most? The guy I like the most who is really just not doing well, honestly, is Nola. Nola's not hurt. His strikeouts to walks are terrific. He just keeps getting hit with a home run seemingly every game that has, with runners on base. You know, just it's just bad luck for the most part. And I, uh, you know, maybe maybe that he maybe it's just going to be the kind of year he has. But his ERA is like about four and a half. There's no way that he's going to have four and a half at the end of the year. It'll be better. I hope so. I have Aaron Nola in a few spots as well, and uh, I would trade for him in leagues that would allow me to trade for him, but the only league I play in that allows trading is American League Tout, so not going to happen. Unless he gets traded. Well, Doug, this has really been interesting so far. Let's take a break. We'll have our National and American League news reports with Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and then we'll come back and pick up where we left off. Sounds good. Doug Dennis is the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick with the National League News, Ray with the AL, next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, going to take a quick second to let you know about how you can get yourself a competitive edge for 2022 and have a ton of fun doing it. Yes, it's First Pitch Arizona. We're back in person for the 26th edition of Baseball HQ's signature fantasy baseball getaway, it's October 14th through 17th at the Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville West in beautiful Mesa, Arizona. First Pitch Arizona is three full days packed with seminars, scouting, and socializing, all within the cozy confines of Arizona Fall League Baseball. At First Pitch, you can pick the brains of the nation's top fantasy baseball analysts. You can participate in fun and challenging fantasy workshops, drafts, and contests. You can benefit from a weekend's worth of seminars covering scouting, sabermetrics, and strategy, and full of insights. And you can see the brightest rising stars from the minor leagues in the Arizona Fall League. Now, we're still waiting on confirmation of when the league is going to start and who's going to be in it, but you can count on having the best seat in the stadium. In 2019 alone, we saw current big leaguers like Jonathan India, Vidal Bruhan, and Alec Bohm. And going back over the years, I can remember seeing Mike Trout and Bryce Harper hitting back-to-back in the same batting order. Nate Pearson firing 100-mile-an-hour seeds. Andrew McCutcheon running down every fly ball in the southwestern United States and hitting two triples in one game. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hitting a line drive with a 225-mile-an-hour exit velocity right through the left field fence. Jazz Chisholm, I saw Luis Robert, Cavan Biggio, Brian Reynolds, and Victor Robles not running out an infield pop-up and getting pulled from the game. I never drafted Victor Robles, and I'm glad of it. And of course, the Vladimir Guerrero thing might have been a slight exaggeration. Your registration includes tickets to those Arizona Fall League ball games. Again, that's still pending. Ron Chandler's 2022 baseball forecaster, the Baseball HQ 2022 minor league baseball analyst, a Thursday evening welcome reception where you can hobnob with the experts and your fellow attendees. There's a free Saturday lunch event, free hot buffet breakfast for guests at the host hotel, many opportunities to shower praise on any Baseball HQ radio host who happens to be present, and all kinds of handouts, instant freebies and prizes. Not to mention just about as many AFL foul balls as you want to run after. The First Pitch Arizona webpage is up and running. For all the latest updates and other details about First Pitch Arizona 2021, go to baseballhq.com slash first hyphen pitch hyphen Arizona, 
or just go to the right-hand side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage and click on the big orange logo. That First Pitch Arizona page has all the early registration discounts, hotel discounts, and a special Ray Murphy beer discount, where Ray will buy you a beer anytime you go up to him and tell him how much you like Baseball HQ Radio. Okay, just kidding. I'd love for you to go and tell Ray how much you like the podcast, but he won't be buying you a beer for doing it. And just so we're clear, neither will I. But free beer or no free beer, previous attendees call it the best weekend of the year. We just call it First Pitch Arizona, and we'll see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report, and leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Stopwatch rolling, tape rolling. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Los Angeles with some really sad, terrible news. Left-hander Clayton Kershaw, future Hall of Famer, has been put on the 10-day injured list earlier this week with what the team called forearm inflammation, which is what fantasy managers call, uh uh-oh. Los Angeles recalled a right-hander named Mitchell White from AAA, safe to say not another Clayton Kershaw. Uh, Jock Thompson is on the story for playing time today. Nick, we know that forearm-related injuries are often precursors to elbow problems, and that often means Tommy John surgeries. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now based on the limited medical information we do have, but what can we do with Clayton Kershaw? Well, no no immediate word given as to the potential severity of this, but it's obviously not good, especially given the way the LA rotation has been thinned out by injuries and by Trevor Bauer's downtime. Uh, the Dodgers are down to three available starting pitchers between now and the All-Star break. They'll likely go with bullpen games, and they've been relatively successful doing that so far this year. But their pitching issues are mounting, and now the Dodgers are more likely than ever to produce, pursue some help before the trade deadline, July 31st. We'll, we'll keep visiting this. We'll keep looking at it and see how things go after the All-Star break. But I'm sure we'll have a lot more news out of Los Angeles as things progress. I was just thinking that, boy, it wouldn't be bad to have a crystal ball of some kind, Nick, and know who's going to get any kind of rotation slot in Los Angeles because notwithstanding their current pitching difficulties, this is a really good, strong team with a good overall roster, a good overall bullpen. I would not mind knowing who that next starter is going to be, even if on the surface he might not look like such a tremendous pitcher. Yeah, I think you're right on that. If you get any word as to... uh as to who they may be pursuing, who they might be bringing up from the minor leagues. Those are the kind of people you might want to pick up, especially if they're on your waiver wire. And the chances are they probably might be uh, floating around in the other league if you're in a National League-only situation. But for right now, uh, you know, you're looking down the line, uh, maybe David Price? Possibly. That's a possibility. I mean, at this point, the Dodgers aren't looking for any kind of a, a – uh, multi-season solution they'll take anybody they can get to help them get through this season and i've heard some talk about um, a guy named josiah gray i think he's a a dodgers prospect who might uh, figure into things yes that's a possibility as well uh and i certainly someone to work to uh, look at and and uh, keep your eye on over these next few weeks I know he was considered a fairly high upside prospect by BaseballHQ.com. Spent last year at the Dodgers alternate site, so you missed that development time and all of that kind of stuff. But apparently good pitches, fastball slider, 
changeup that maybe needs some work, but uh, keep an eye on Josiah Gray, and maybe, if your league rules allow it, get him before the getting's good. Very definitely. If you've got a roster spot, that's someone you should tuck away. In Miami, unfortunately, there's no doubt about the health of right-hander Sixto Sanchez. He had been experiencing soreness in the back of his right shoulder all season. Finally, the Marlins, after trying rehab and physiotherapy and what have you, gave him an MRI, and they said he's got a small tear in the posterior capsule of his throwing shoulder. He's going to have season-ending surgery to fix it. The team hopes... He'll be ready for spring training next season. Phil Hertz covered this story for playing time today. Uh, What happens with the Miami rotation now that Sixto Sanchez is for sure not going to be part of it in 2021? Not too much immediate effect since Sanchez hasn't pitched all year, but certainly a blow to fantasy managers who hope to see him this season if they had him on their roster. Uh, For the the last while, the Marlins have been using a four-man rotation. Uh, Sandy Alcantara, Trevor Rogers, Pablo Lopez, Zach Thompson, uh, making use of off days. And all four of those pitchers have ERAs under three and whip ratios under 1.10. Thompson had been pitching in place of Cody Poteet, who's now in the IL. They've also used Jordan Holloway and Ross Detweiler as openers, piggybacking each other, and then a cast of thousands after them. So it looks like uh, there's not going to be an immediate fifth starter in Miami? I think, I think certainly not uh, right away. I think we'll have to wait again and see how things play out as the uh, trend di- deadline approaches. In Milwaukee, the Brewers made a trade for Toronto DH first baseman Rowdy Tellez, sending right-handers Trevor Richards and Bowden Francis north of the border. Tom Kephart covered the story for playing time today. I'll be checking in with Ray Murphy about the role Richards might play in Toronto when we get to our American League news report. But for now, Nick, uh, what role is Rowdy Tellez likely to play in Milwaukee? Tellez is likely to see opportunity for occasional first base starts, especially versus right-handed pitching with Dan Vogelbach on the I.L. for at least the next five weeks and Keston Iura having been sent back to the minors. Uh, with Vogelbach and Iura off the active roster, infielder Jason Peterson had been getting some reps at first base. Expect those to diminish or to vanish. And, of course, uh, since this analysis was written, uh, Iura has been recalled again. He started the other night at first base, so that's a little bit of a surprise for me. But, frankly, uh, I was a huge Tellez believer, Nick, as you know, after he broke through in 2019, had 21 homers and 409 plate appearances, a sort of a 30 home run pace for a full season. Then in 2020, cut the strikeout rate in half, drew a bunch more walks, hit over 280, OPS way over 800, eight home runs and 127 plate appearances, which is close to a 40 homer pace. But this year, Nick, he was just awful. Yeah, he was. He was lost to the plate in Toronto. I had him on a couple of rosters. We got him out of the active uh, active lineup, uh, batting under 200 most of the season, hitting four home runs at 156 plate appearances. That's just a 15 home run pace. And those poor results, coupled with the wealth of hitting talent crowding the Blue Jays roster, led to his being sent down to AAA. He continues to show a line drive stroke, though his expected batting average is much lower than in previous seasons. A fact fluke analysis in early June had to you a strong stat cast metric. 14% barrel rate, 88th percentile average exit velocity, and 94th percentile maximum exit velocity. As a reason to consider him as a deep league target. The move to Milwaukee shouldn't have any big ballpark effect either way. Milwaukee Park plays about uh, plus 10% for left-handed power and a small edge and reduced strikeouts. Uh, the Brewers have playoff aspirations, however, with a six-game lead in the National League Central and the third-best record in the league. So Telez will have to show his stuff pretty quickly. 
So we'll see if the change of scenery makes a difference. Uh, but certainly it's someone worth watching, if not worth tucking away uh, on your roster to see if he regains what he showed a year ago. Uh, since the trade, and I know it's very early, Tellez had one pinch hit appearance and four plate appearances starting at first base in the back end of a doubleheader earlier this week. He has one hit and a couple of strikeouts so far. And ominously, the other night against Cincinnati right-hander Tyler Molly, they sat Tellez, the left-handed hitter, and played Hira, the right-handed hitter. And I know Hira has a bit of a reverse platoon split, but uh, if I was Rowdy Tellez or a Rowdy Tellez fantasy manager, I'd be a little concerned that they didn't look at the possibility to play a left-handed bat against a right-handed pitcher and instead went for a guy who's just really struggling in general and is the wrong side of the platoon to boot. Right. Uh, certainly that doesn't, doesn't bode well for uh, Tellez's immediate playing time. Uh, and maybe at this point they, they have some faith still in Iora and want to see what he can do. Uh, maybe they had some inside information as to uh, earlier uh, batting uh, batting appearances against that pitcher. It's, it's hard to tell nowadays. And speaking of Milwaukee, uh, infielder Orlando Arcia used to play for the Brewers. They finally cut bait and sent him along to uh, Atlanta where he's been languishing in the minors, but they called him up again recently. Alanda uh, Leonardis covers the National League East in playing time tomorrow. Roster forecasting, what is Atlanta doing with Orlando Arcia? Well, Arcia at this point looks like they may be uh, maybe transitioning him into left field. The season at AAA, he hit uh, a 303, 380, 552 slash line uh, combined and uh, an identical 10.9% uh, walk rate, strikeout rate, over 29 appearances. That's very nice. Uh, and a 291 uh, batting average on balls in play. So suggests that he's not uh, he's not getting a whole lot of uh, positive luck, just about where we would expect him to be. They've tried a number of players in left field over the past several weeks, but haven't quite found the right solution. Uh, Abraham Almonte earned an extended look after a torrid start in AAA, uh, but his work in the big leagues was just awful. Well, not quite awful, but hasn't blocked him into the position. A 775 OPS, 110 plate appearances. Most impressive skills uh, were his walk rate at 20.9% and strikeout rate also at 20%. Uh, so when Arcia started a few games in left field in Gwinnett, the writing was on the wall. The Braves would transition shortstop to the outfield and see if they could take advantage of the progress he'd made at the minor league level to help fill the void in left field. Since call-up on July 4th, he started in left field all four games Atlanta played, going 5-15, one home run, four RBIs, a walk, an intentional walk, by the way, and two strikeouts. So uh, a decent start. Uh, manager Brian Snitker said this to say about RCS playing time. We're going to try him for a while. Who, who knows? This kid might provide some spark we're looking for. He'll probably have right up until the trade deadline to prove that he can provide that spark playing left field. If not, the Braves should try to import another solution. I had to laugh when I read that quote from Brian Snitker. You know, you're kind of looking for something like, this is our boy and we're going to take him all the way to the end. And he says, well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Give it a shot, you know. And in fact, he had not. they probably need to check his defense in left field as well. He started just a few games before being brought up and that's another thing certainly they need to look at is the transition to the outfield going to work. 
Usually, uh, shortstops being at the uh, far demanding end of the uh, defense curve right behind catchers, if you move them out to left field, which is a, it's let's face it, it's a much easier position to play, and you'd think that a shortstop who should be a good general fielder might not have as much difficulty adapting as, say, if you were moving uh, some outfielder into third base, for instance. Right. I think you're right about that. It certainly should be an easy transition, uh, but certainly one that the, uh, the uh, big league club is going to keep an eye on. And in Chicago, the Cubs' Anthony Rizzo has yet to hit the injured list this season, but he has missed quite a few games. Six in May, I think, with back problems. Three more recently got back into the lineup last Friday. Dan Marcus covers the Cubs in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the National League Central. How does Rizzo's ailing back potentially affect his playing time? Well, you know, in the short term, if Rizzo is further sidelined, the emergence of Patrick Wisdom uh, could help soften the blow. Uh, David Bode is currently on the injured list, though he appears close to a potential return. And while Wisdom can play first base, Bode can play third base and allow Chris Bryant to get some more work at first base. So as for the skills, Wisdom has shown more upside in his brief time with the Major with the club, a 214 expected power index, 54% contact rate. While Bode offers a more steady profile, 134 expected power index, 75% contact rate. And the team has uh, also made a financial commitment to Boat, placed their trust in him across the past few seasons. Without an injury, his return will certainly cost Wisdom playing time and might even cost him his lost roster spot. As for Rizzo, he's among the club's core players who enter free agency after this season. And his history with back injuries, which dates back to 2018, could really affect his future with the Cubs or the length and value of his next contract in a market that has already docked aging players pretty heavily. Rizzo will be 31 when he enters uh, either signs an extension or enters the free agent market. Uh, 62 career BPV. His skills have gently dipped in the last two seasons. 45 and 55 BPV after posting a no mark under 68 since the 2013 campaign. So Rizzo could uh, become the next veteran to earn a relatively disappointing contract in the open market. His chances of matching the deal uh, earned by Paul Goldsmith uh, in St. Louis or Eric Hosmer in San Diego, those could be in jeopardy with the back issue. And getting us back to the uh, fantasy aspects of this, uh, BaseballHQ.com is a little more confident, I think, than uh, perhaps this analysis would suggest. We're projecting a sort of a low $20 5x5 value for the rest of the season with 12 homers, a two seventy five batting average, you know, traditional what we'd expect from Anthony Rizzo. So I guess the question here, Nick, for anybody who's looking at Anthony Rizzo, especially in leagues where you can trade and you're thinking, should I trade him away? Should I trade to acquire him? Can I play this to my advantage? Somehow is... Just how confident do you feel that this back injury is going to not be an ongoing problem for the entire rest of the season? Yeah, I think that's the question. I mean, you know, as, as an older guy myself with back problems, uh, those things can really, really hamper you on the, on the baseball field. And so uh, I always get, get a little scared when one of my guys goes out with a back problem. You never know how long that's going to last. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Uh, I, if I... If you could sell high on Rizzo with someone who doesn't uh, worry about the back problem, it might be worth doing. Well, someone offered uh, you to me in a fantasy trade, and now that you've told me about this back issue, I don't think I'm going to go for it. Yeah, I think so. There you go. And uh, as a fellow with uh, back problems of my own, I can empathize with everybody who has them. uh, And certainly... uh, 
the sport of baseball with all of the torsional rotation that it involves both throwing but especially hitting uh, gosh uh, a back injury is kind of re- really the back and the oblique injuries are the ones that really make me worried about a hitter especially as far as sapping power yeah i think you're absolutely right those are those are the ones that are most likely to i think sap power and the ones that guys might might try not to let anybody know about but they're going to show up in the play All right, Nick, thanks very much. We're coming up to uh, All-Star Weekend, of course. Well, All-Star break after the weekend. Uh, And I wonder, do you watch the game? Do you watch the Home Run Derby, all that kind of stuff? Uh, Sure. I I don't don't necessarily watch the Home Run Derby, but certainly watch the game and and see how everything goes and hope none of my players get hurt in the meantime. (laughs) Or at the game in particular. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again after the break next Friday. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Thanks, PD. Last one of the first half, right? Yes, and of course we have our uh, roundtable edition. You, me, and Todd should get together uh, on All-Star Tuesday, I think, next week and talk about the first half. We'll make all those arrangements a little later on. But in the meantime, let's talk about the last bit of news for this part of the season. Uh, We'll start in Tampa Bay. They placed outfielder Manuel Margot on the 10-day IL. He has a left hamstring strain. That was on Wednesday, retroactive to Tuesday. But what was more interesting about this, I think, is that they recalled outfielder Vidal Bruhan from AAA. Chris Olson on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the impact here? The impact, as near as I can see, is that my Twitter feed is inundated with Vidal Sassoon jokes. But uh, that's probably not what you mean. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, thank you for not sharing. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I think we we skimmed Bruhan. I think when Wander Franco came up because he was Bruhan became sort of the next domino to fall after Franco, and he's interesting because as the Rays deal with this logjam of talent, this embarrassment of young riches they have, they've got to figure out how to fit all these guys on the diamond, and they had been preparing Bruhan for this by playing him almost everywhere in AAA. I think he had played second, short, third, and all three outfield positions, so. He was ideally prepped for the eventuality of someone getting hurt. And in this case, it ended up being Margot, who's going to be out for it. Sounds like that might be a two to three week injury. So, uh, you know, we're going to lose a few days to the All-Star break there. But Bruhan looks like he has a little bit of a window here. He got, uh, I think he played one game at second base and one game in the outfield in the uh, doubleheader on his call-up day. So he's immediately flashing that flexibility. Tampa already has a couple of those kind of guys in uh, Mike Brasso and Taylor Walls. And uh, in Chris Olson's analysis, he said Brasso has had, and I'm quoting here, epic struggles at the plate all season and says Walls has not been much better. And I suppose that's true if you're in batting average leagues, but in on-base leagues, uh, Walls has actually been really good. He's drawing a ton of walks. I think his on-base percentage is up around 340. Yes, he's been acquitting himself pretty well there, at least for a bottom of the lineup, set him and forget him kind of shortstop. He's only hitting 228, but like you said, the OBP is more than acceptable. And it seems like he's the, of of these, the, these of this group of young Rays, he's the natural shortstop defender. So that's also, you know, I'm not saying he's Andrelton Simmons, but he's the, uh, he, he's the reliable glove and the combination of the glove and the OBP is going to keep get, getting him at least semi-regular work, it looks like. 
In that first game that you mentioned with uh, Bruhan, it was a doubleheader, and uh, the the Rays, when they lost Margot, also had to replace their leadoff hitter, and they went with Brandon Lau, whose uh, on-base percentage is just barely over 300, and I wonder if maybe they're going to take a look at Bruhan or uh, if they've got Franco in a RBI position, but I wonder if Taylor Walls might sneak up into a leadoff position and maybe have a little more chance to flash some of the speed that he's also known for. There's, I, I think there's certainly a possibility of that. Uh, the other guy that comes to mind for me uh, is G-Man Choi, who's got a 380-something OBP, and I know we've seen him in the leadoff spot from time to time in the past. Obviously, that doesn't exactly set up the uh, hit and run or anything like that when G-Man Choi gets on first base, but you know, the Rays have shown the ability to be the uh, willingness to be flexible with the lineup. So I would imagine we will continue to see that. But uh, Walls could easily be part of that rotation or on a, you know, on a spot basis toward the top of the order. Yeah, with uh, Choi in there, I think it would be more like hit and plod as a, right. as a tactical method. He, he may or may not score from first on a triple. <laughs> In Minnesota, the Twins activated right-hander Michael Pineda from his latest stint on the IL and optioned right-hander Griffin Jacks to AAA. Rick Graney on the story for playing time today. I have to say, Michael Pineda did not look sharp in his return. What's the play in Minnesota now? Yeah, he got knocked around pretty good, and uh, somebody had asked about him in our daily matchups column uh, in the comments area, and it was interesting because I because somebody asked, I went back and was looking at his... Uh, his rehab start and he had he had been rehabbing for a couple of weeks but he had been shut down in between and he had one four inning start before they called him back up so it, it sort of looked like he wasn't certainly going to be stretched out for a long outing and not only was it not a long outing but as you say it wasn't uh, wasn't effective either uh 12 hits and five earned runs and five and a third is boy 12 hits might be the most i've seen anybody give up this year i think i don't know if, if anybody comes to mind for you that's a that's a rough ratio outing even with no walks he uh I guess the charitable aspect of it would be to say he got bad to death, but uh, looking at our game log here, I see uh, seven ground balls, eight line drives, and five fly balls. That's uh, that's going to that's going to give up a lot of hits anytime. Pineda came into the game with a 3.70 ERA, but a 4.45 expected ERA. I wonder if the expected ERA at this stage of Pineda's career is maybe a little more trustworthy than what he's actually doing out there. I was going to say the same thing when I pulled up his player card this morning. I feel like we've been saying since his since his Yankee prospect days or since his Mariner days that he deserves better luck here with 15 walks and 55 strikeouts and 61 innings. I mean that's a that's a pretty good ratio for sure. You know we that's a uh, you know with our new metrics of uh, percent based metrics that's six uh, percent walk rate, 21 percent strikeout for a 16 percent K minus BB for a starting pitcher that'll play, but. The issue with Pineda is never the walks and strikeouts. It's what happens when bat meets ball, uh, especially in the home run front. And that's been an issue this year again with uh, 1.6 home runs per nine, even in this slightly tamped down home run environment. That's just uh, that's too many. But that's a uh, that's a career long problem for Pineda. So we can't just sit here waiting for that to correct. You will uh, you will get old and gray waiting for that. And we should point out that uh, the outing that he had with the five runs in five innings has raised his ERA over four. It now sits at 411, a 124 whip. These are not outstanding numbers of the kind. I think that most people who rostered Michael Pineda in their drafts this year were hoping for a little better than that. No, that's for sure. And it's interesting because, you know, it's getting late in his career. Pineda's, you know, the one-time Uber prospect is now 32. Uh, it's, it's getting a little, little late and unreasonable to expect 
somewhat to learn new tricks. But, you know, with the twins fading out of the race, I do wonder if Pineda goes in the trade block and if some other team can figure out a different way to use them or a different way to adjust his pitch mix or something to try to get the results more in line with the skills because some of the skills have always been there, but they've almost never translated the results. And of course, should Pineda get traded away, uh, Griffin Jacks, the guy who got sent down to AAA, could return and and maybe be somebody worth looking at. Yeah, one has to imagine that in general, the uh, you know the, the August and September in Minnesota are going to bring going to be the old uh, tagline of "Bring your kids to see our kids," and it's going to be a uh, a wholesale youth movement for uh, a couple of months while the Twins try to figure out how to reload for twenty two. And yes, Jacks can certainly be part of that. I would imagine we will see him on August 1st, if not before. In Chicago, the White Sox placed catcher Yasmani Grandal on the 10-day IL. On Tuesday, he's got a torn tendon in his knee, and they recalled a catcher named Sebi Zavala from the minors. Uh, Grandal, they say, should miss four to six weeks. Rick Green covering the story for playing time today. Another multiple-week injury for the beleaguered White Sox. Uh, What's going to happen with the playing time on this occasion? Yeah, that's a tough tough one for sure. Grandal, uh, you know, we were talking about OBP guys earlier. Grandal was only hitting 188, but had a 388 OBP with 14 home runs. So he was, you know, a fixture in the middle of that lineup uh, besides behind Jose Abreu. And this is a the, the other thing that was so great about this fit when the White Sox picked him up is, you know, he was the sort of the token left-handed bat in the in the middle of this lineup that's otherwise very right-handed. So as you say, it's been a real tough stretch of injuries all season long for the White Sox, and this just gets worse. I, you know, if there's good news here, it's good news. If you're a Zach Collins fan, uh, he's gonna pick up the bulk of the playing time. He's also left-handed. He also has a low, low batting average, but brings a reasonable OBP to the table. He's got a 12% walk rate that goes with a 63% contact rate. So he's got two of the three outcomes down. The problem is he's only got three home runs. So the the third, the third true outcome that we really like is a little bit lacking, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens with a little more uh, exposure to playing time. This was a former top prospect who, you know, knocked, a, knocked around and you know the, is now a bat first catcher. You know, we, we were always more enticed by the bat than the defensive prowess, but uh, we're going to get four to six weeks to look at him as probably the lead guy and see what he can do here. Also in Chicago, a tale of two Adams as the White Sox activated outfielder Adam Engel from the 10-day IL and designated outfielder Adam Eaton for assignment. All on Wednesday, Rick Green again for playing time today. Is this the last we're going to hear from Adam Eaton, do you think? You know, it's interesting. It seems like he's been around forever, and yet he's, you know, only 32. So maybe not, but the, you know, the skills have been atrophying for a while. You know, he's not the same skill profile when he first came up, ironically, with the White Sox years ago, when he was an everyday guy who had double-digit power and speed and a nice contact rate that really sort of was a, a stat sheet filler, uh, you know, a five a potential five-category contributor in an age where we didn't have a lot of those. But, you know, that's really tailed off. And in particular, uh, you know, the contact rate has held up, but, uh, you know, the, the hard contact has deteriorated. That's now below average. And, you know, who knows if he's healthy or, you know, there's certainly been a litany of injuries in his career and maybe uh, maybe some time off or maybe a healthy offseason gets him, uh, you know, non-roster invite to camp somewhere next year. And we see the a flash of the better version of Adam Eaton. But, you know, I'm not willing to say he's gone for good, but I, I, I think it's fair to say his best days are behind him. At this point. Meanwhile, uh, 
You've got guys like uh, Brian Goodwin, Billy Hamilton, Larry Garcia, Gavin Sheets, and even Danny Mendick, who could play outfield with the uh, whole situation being as unruly as it is. And uh, the recommendation from Rick Green is uh, not the one you might expect. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it's a, it's a little bit unusual to have teams giving away, you know, or freely giving up talent like this. And, you know, in Eaton, you know, Eaton's obviously struggled. But it, it, this, the move to get rid of him is kind of a vo- vote of confidence in all of these guys, right? Yep. And Andrew Vaughn and, you know, we've talked about Larry Garcia before moving back and forth between second base and the outfield. And Engel is the one who forces this move by coming off the DL. And we talked about Engel the first time he came off the DL a couple of weeks ago where there's, you know, there's a batting average downside there, but there's power and speed. Goodwin's another guy who hits from the left side, which, as we mentioned, this lineup needs. And Lewis Robert isn't that far away as he gets into a rehab assignment, too. So, you know, the White Sox have clearly made it, made a determination that they, they have enough options here to hold the fort without eating without to get around. They're kind of in that awkward place where they might have a default pass into the playoffs, but not a team good enough to be competitive in the playoffs. And I think that may be the circle that they're going to have to try to square. Their rotation potentially stacks up very nicely for a short series with Gwynn and Giolito and Rodon and, you know, C's can be hit or miss, but can go out and throw a uh, throw a gem on any, any kind of notice. So, I mean, I don't think they're a team I'd want to face in a short series, but, you know, we to your point, we don't really know what the lineup is going to look like come October with, uh, with all of these injured guys and the uh, work they still have to put in between now and then to get, get all the way back. I'm very interested to see what Chicago is going to do. We'll put it that way uh, as the season unfolds and what they do, especially at the trading deadline uh, over to Kansas city, Ray, and uh, should have a drum roll here or some kind of musical yes. bed or something. It's Edward Oliveira's time again. He's been sent back down to AAA because the Royals activated uh, Andrew Benintendi from the 10 day IL with that rib problem. Uh, Jock Thompson covering the story Ray at this point, I bet you Oliveras doesn't even cancel his lease in Omaha when he gets called up. <laughs> you got to think he's living in hotels in both cities. Absolutely, it's it, it, in this case. I think you know there were a bunch of cases where, you, the, for all the times we've joked and covered about Oliveras, there were a couple of times when the move made sense or didn't, or the move made less sense. I think this one is hard is harder to argue with because Ben and Teddy comes back and really needs to get blood right back into the lineup. Uh, Reminder that Benintendi actually looked pretty good uh, before he went on the DL in May. Uh, you know, he was, he was at 283 with his usual decent OBP up around 340, and the power that had been entirely absent in uh, his last year, year and a half in Boston, was seemingly on the way back. He had nine home runs and seven stolen bases. Uh, you know, so he was really filling up the uh, the five categories for us. The the seven stolen bases against six caught stealings is kind of a red flag. But, uh, you know, as long as Mike Matheny is willing to let him run, uh, you know, he was, you know, on a 2020 pace before getting hurt. It'll be hard to see him make that back up now, uh, you know, given the lost time. But, uh, you know, there's certainly more power and speed to be mined there if he can stay healthy and uh, pick up where he left off. Jock Thompson pointed out that this seems like a rather quick turnaround for a rib fracture that began uh, in mid-June. So what is it, barely a... Barely a month, a little more than that. Uh, not even a month, I guess. Three weeks to get get better from a rib fracture. I mean, I've had 
rib injuries, not fractures before, and it just seems like that's a very short time to get back out and start rotating your body in the way you have to to swing a baseball bat. Yeah, it'll be something to keep an eye on, but you know, it's one of those things where theoretically they didn't have to activate him right away. If they wanted to give him another week and use the all-star break, I mean, he must be good to go because it would just be you know, malpractice to activate him for three or four or five games when he could have gotten four more days off and he's only going to play four games out of 10. Maybe they think this is a good way to, you know, get him four or five games in and get him shut down for a few more days to, you know, to rest it up. But uh, I got to believe that they know what they're doing. But, I, you know, those are famous last words, right? Especially in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Boston, the Red Sox activated infielder Christian Arroyo from the 10-day IL and sent uh, infielder Michael Chavis back to AAA. Chris Olson for playing time today here. I'm guessing Arroyo slides straight back into his role as the main second baseman in Boston. Yeah, he's really run that run, run with that job. He's been a revelation. I mean, his numbers are not earth-shattering or anything. He's hitting about 260 with five home runs and short playing time, but he's really not just stabilize that second base position that had been a revolving door, but, you know, he, he's been clutched. He's brought some fire. He fields the position well. And sort of the best thing from the cascading point of view is that he frees up Kike Hernandez to go out to center field where that's been another revolving door. But, you know, it's really come to look like the Red Sox best lineup is the one that's got in center field and Arroyo at second base that fits Verdugo and Renfro into the corners and really just makes everything work better. It puts Marwan Gonzalez on the bench with his 140 batting average or something, which is where you want your 140 batting average. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, a Royal returning really makes a lot of the other pieces on this team fit together nicely. What do we make in the meantime of Michael Chavis? Uh, at one time, there was a lot of hope and promise that he might be a, a worthwhile major leaguer and a fantasy contributor, but it just seems like he just can't get the bat on the ball often enough to, to be what we hoped he could be. I think that's right. I've lost a lot of, uh, I've lost a lot of hope myself there. You know, with the Red Sox, when he's been, he's been on the shuttle a couple of times when AAA and back this year, and when he's been in the majors, they've really been trying to limit him to facing left-handed pitching, which is a tough way to make a living uh, in this day and age. He's, you know, when he's in AAA, he's doing a little bit better, but he's still striking out, you know, just about thirty percent of the time down there, and that's not completely disqualifying. But, uh, but you got to hit more than better things have to happen in the seventy percent of the time when you put the ball in play if you're going to strike out thirty percent of the time and. Chavez has really struggled, especially against right-handed pitching in the big leagues and hasn't shown a heck of a lot of signs of solving that problem. And he's kind of not young enough to be patient with anymore. So he's, you know, he's 25, which is not old enough to write off, but he's had, you know, a full, almost a full season's worth of at-bats in his career now with a 64% contact rate in the majors, which really isn't going to get it done. So, I don't know that the Red Sox would get much for him if they put him on the table at the trade deadline, but I wouldn't be surprised if he is a throw-in or an, or an additional sweetener into a trade for somebody else this month who is rebuilding and wants to take a look at them for themselves. Perhaps more intriguing news out of Boston, the Red Sox said left-hander Chris Sale, recovering from Tommy John's surgery, of course, uh, he's going to throw a simulated game this weekend, and that could be a precursor to a rehab start in the minor leagues. Chris Olson, of course, for playing time today. How close is Chris Sale to returning to the big leagues? 
you know, I think he's still a little bit away, but in terms of these long stretch rehabs from Tommy John, his has gone about as smoothly as it can. There has been not even a, a report of a setback or anything like that. The Red Sox have been pretty cautious with him, but every time they've asked him to check a box, he's checked the box. So it seems like the next step is going to be getting some work in minor league games, and the Sox have been in, making some interesting statements about how, how that's going to work. One thing they've said is, first of all, while they are intending to bring him back as a starter, and they're not going to bring him up to the Boston again until he's ready to go, 90 pitches, six innings, whatever it is, but that they're not going to do the rehabs, the, the rehabs through the minors in the sort of leapfrog fashion of a game in single A or two games in single A and work him up the ladder. They're going to throw him in even for the shorter outings in probably triple A, double or triple A the whole time and try to get him the work against better competition, even if he's not not stretched out yet for, to be more than an opener in AAA, essentially. Uh, but I thought that was interesting and also speaks to, I think, where they think his stuff is because, it, it, you know, one of the reasons you send them down to the low minors first is they can get comfortable and you don't really have to worry about the 18-year-old just out of high school knocking Chris Sale around, right? right. But um, <laughs> it, it, And he can just go throw his fastballs and get his work in and, the guys in the batter's box aren't terribly relevant, but they they clearly think he's far enough along that he can at least face off with AAA hitters while he's still trying to get a feel for his stuff. So I, I find all of this very encouraging. The other possibility, of course, is that he already has the feel for his stuff, and they've seen that, and he may uh, be very confident, and I'm sure they're making these decisions in consultation with Chris Sale. He's a well-established veteran, and I wonder if he's telling them, look, I don't need to go to low A. I don't need to go to single A. I just want to get out to triple A, and I want to show you that I can get this done and hasten my return to the big leagues. He seems like a very competitive guy anyway, as we've seen in the past. Now, the question is, with Chris Sale definitely on the way back, and we can't say exactly when, who is the likely playing time loser in that rotation? Yeah, that's a very interesting conversation. Alex Cora had some statements about that, I think after uh, some cameras caught Sale throwing off the mound in Boston before a game last week, uh, and you know they immediately posed that question to Alex Cora. And you know he had a lot of interesting things to say along the lines of going back to even spring training, they were comfortable with the current, what turned out to be the current starting rotation holding up for at least the first half of the season. And they've done as well as anybody in that regard. I think in their 85 games, I think they've had five starters cover all but two of them or something like that, which is, you know, been, it's been a really stable rotation. But because of that, Cora said they are worried about the workload concerns coming off the short 2020, et cetera, for basically the entire rotation. So, there's talk of a six-man rotation. There's talk of some piggyback starts. Uh, a six-man rotation might be good for Sale, too, as he slots back in here and gets an extra day of rest. Um, the other guy who's getting close to popping into their rotation is Tanner Houck, who's the Sox prospect who made a splash in September of 2020 and then uh, had a forearm injury earlier this season that set him back quite a bit. But he's coming back, too, uh, and will probably be in the rotation. But So between Sale and Houck and maybe a pick up at the trade deadline, they're going to add some reinforcements here, and they're going to Cora basically said they're going to get very creative about how they deploy them. I can certainly imagine Hauk and someone like Garrett Richards turning into a tandem outing sort of thing, uh, or maybe Sale gets that treatment for his first couple of starts, uh, but everyone's going to get extra rest. Everyone's innings are going to get cut for the second half, because 
you know, the Sox won't say this publicly, but they may also be surprised that they have to be planning for October as well. So <laughs> tacking another month onto the workload for these guys for the season is uh, you know, maybe a happy, uh, happy yet not totally foreseen occurrence that they now have to adapt to. Of course, one of the stories in Boston this year has been the difficulties that they're having in the bullpen, not so much at the back end of it, but in all those bridging type guys. And I wonder if the Red Sox are looking at the situation and saying, you know what, if we could throw a sale out there in tandem with Richards, we can get deeper into the game before we have to go to our bullpen. And, and basically we're replacing a borderline type of guy in that middle of the bullpen kind of role with a much better starter who's pitching in that middle kind of role, getting three innings or four innings as the follow-up guy or bulk guy. And they have guys like, you know, mentioned Garrett Richards, maybe Martin Perez, uh, uh, Tanner Houck. All of these guys seem like they're better than the pitchers they would be replacing. And if they, if the Red Sox were willing to be a little ambitious as far as their planning with the use of these guys, uh, they could short-circuit the need to go and, and troll around on the trade wires and give something up to get a you know, a, a quality reliever f- uh, through the trade w- uh, waves. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point. And the Sox have a bunch of guys who are kind of able to do that. You know, Garrett Whitlock's been a revelation, the rule five guy out of the pen, who is a, uh, you know, that kind of multi-inning reliever and has been exceptional in that role. Matt Andresi has also filled that role you know, with varying degrees of effectiveness too. Uh, so yeah, if you went to, having a tier of the team like Andresi and Whitlock and maybe you take Garrett Richards and put him into a two, two, three inning relief role and let him just air it out without having to necessarily have a great feel for his breaking stuff and use Hauk that way. Yeah. You could get to the point where you have a, a crew of starters who you don't necessarily ask as much of, but then you've got sort of a two inning reliever lined up for most days. And then you can go right to, Adovito or Barnes or the you know the back end guys after that if you if if all works out you have the lead that night so uh, obviously the downside of that is you know all those guys chew up roster spots and you know, it's always tough to figure out how to use thirteen guys but hey we're gonna get, we're not that far off from September and all those pre- all those pressures get eased then so right. I would imagine you'll see a revolving door in the bullpen until rosters are bad. In Toronto, they finally said goodbye to Rowdy Tellez, who basically ran out of room when the George Springer acquisition, and they thought maybe he could be the token left-hander in that lineup, but he was just terrible. He, he couldn't hit at all. He was striking out a ton. They moved him to Milwaukee, and more importantly, they got back Trevor Richards in the deal. It's the second time that Trevor Richards has moved this year. Uh, are you expecting Trevor Richards to immediately assume a fairly prominent role in that Toronto bullpen? Uh, Toronto bullpen has been such a sieve that he almost has to because, you know, no one out there has been able to stay healthy and or effective for more than a couple of weeks at a time. And Richards really seems to have figured something out in Milwaukee since the uh, since the trade. You know, he wasn't really good in Tampa, at least by outward numbers, but his walk and strikeout numbers were quite good. But, you know, he had a good month in uh, in June with a 119 ERA. His ex-ERA was was a fair bit worse. He's always been a fly ball guy, which is going to be a little bit dangerous in Buffalo and or Toronto or wherever the Jays play. But, uh, you know, he's been pretty effective out of the bullpen of late. And yeah, I think the Jays are going to run him out there because as long as he's healthy, he's better than what they have. Or if he's healthy, he's better than what they have because he's not on the, not on the IL. So they, they've had such a problem there that, you know, clearly they targeted getting rid of Telez to get somebody who could help them out a little bit there. 
And finally, Jock Thompson's Playing Time Tomorrow article this week covers the American League West as usual, and he starts the process of reading the tea leaves about possible trade action, focusing the attention first on Texas. Obviously, they're going to be in the seller's market. They're going nowhere fast. They have three guys they could potentially trade out. And Jock says the most notable of these, the very surprising starter Kyle Gibson. Uh, What is the likelihood that Gibson gets traded? I think very high. You could disagree, but what happens in the rotation if they do? Yeah, really interesting to start thinking about these things. This is kind of what we do in July. I used to do it in the speculator space, and now the playing time tomorrow guys do a little bit of this. Uh, and they're, obviously, they're closer to their teams, so it's it's always good to get their insights. Gibson certainly bubbles to the top of the list. He's been remarkable this year. You know, he got knocked around on opening day, but I think he's uh, only allowed two runs just once in 15 starts since then. Just really consistent and Maybe not the kind of guy that you want to plug into a rotation in a playoff game, but for somebody who's in a play at a playoff race and trying to lengthen their rotation, you know, you can certainly see where the appeal is. Um, as far as who would replace him in the Texas rotation, Jock pointed to John King, who's a lefty who's been pretty effective out of the multi-inning relief role in that pen with a 3.52 ERA and a 3.49 expected ERA, uh, about three and a half strikeouts for every walk. And a 57 ground ball, 57% ground ball rate, all of that will play. And let's not forget that we've seen the uh, the Rangers go this route before this year. You know, Kobe Allard was sort of in that multi-inning relief role with some effectiveness before transitioning to the rotation. And, uh, you know, so that's this sort of seems like a path the Rangers want to navigate. It's one of the ways they've been managing the, inning, the workloads for their young starters. So, they may give King a two-month look at the rotation to see if that's a role that they can count on him for in 2022 and beyond. I was thinking about it, and when you look at Gibson, his salary for next year, he's signed through next year, it's only $7 million, which to normal people sounds like a great amount of money, but in the world of baseball, weird as it is, it's not really that great of an amount of money. certainly would be classed as affordable, especially if he's pitching like this. Do you think Texas sees their window of opportunity so far down the road that Gibson can't help them uh, next year? And if so, that seems to add to his appeal to a potential acquiring team because you're not just getting him for this year's stretch run, you're getting him for this year and next year, which could really shore up the uh, the hopes and dreams of any team that thinks it's going to have a longer window of opportunity more currently. That's right, and I think that probably affects which teams the Rangers end up talking to about him. Uh, for instance, you know, in, in division deals are always rough. And like you say, the Rangers have to figure out their own calculus of whether they think they can be better in 2022 or if their window is further out. But for instance, uh, Jock and I were going back and forth about the Angels the other night. And if you look at the, the Angels rotation, not just whether it needs to be short up now, the, the Angels are only 500 right now and probably on the edges of the playoff picture at best. But if you project out to 2022 in their rotation, you know, they're going to have Otani back and Griffin Cannon got sent to the minors, but he's probably still part of their rotation going forward. But after that, they basically have nothing on the books. Andrew Heaney becomes a free agent after this year. Dylan Bundy, too. Alex Cobb as well. Jose Quintana as well. So they're losing like four-fifths of their rotation. So if the Angels wanted to do sort of a, a now and later kind of trade, you know, and get somebody to fill their rotation, boost their rotation right now, but also fill one of three or four spots that are projected to have open for next year. Somebody like Gibson makes a heck of a lot of sense. That's just one example. There are probably other teams in that picture as well. But sure, the 
that changes what the Rangers are going to ask for in return. But for the Angels to get some coverage for both now and later, uh, there might be, uh, you know, there might be a match out there. And that's, those are the conversations that, you know, assistant GMs and interns and water boys are having on uh, cell phone and text conversations all over the game right now, right? I'm sure they are, yes. And uh, you mentioned the Angels. Uh, Jock talked about them in the sense that he wasn't sure, and he's an Angels guy down there in Southern California. He isn't sure if the Angels are going to be buyers or sellers because they're on that cusp, as you suggested. And when I looked at it, I thought, well, Here's third baseman Anthony Rendon back on the IL, I think, for the third time this year, having a terrible year anyway. So if they look at that and they think to themselves, between him, Trout will be coming back but probably won't be contributing, at least with the stolen bases in the way he has, they might not want to really push Shoya Otani down to the end of the season if they have nothing to win by doing so. So they might decide to sell and, as you said, reset maybe for next year because the the building blocks seem to be in place for a run in 2022. And if they do, the number one prize looks like it could be closer Rezal Iglesias as far as the kind of guy who could bring back a nice pot full of uh, prospects and maybe even a, a borderline major leaguer. What would be the fallout, do you think, if Iglesias were to be shipped out of Los Angeles? Iglesias, if he was on the market, would certainly be a premium chip. I saw a bunch of chatter this week about people coming up with rankings of players who might be available at the trade deadline, and they were saying that Craig Kimbrell would be the big prize. I don't know. If I were a GM, I think I'd be chasing Iglesias before Kimbrell. Uh, he's just been terrific. I, you know, Going back to last year and carrying it over this year, you know, his 357 ERA is a little high for a closer, but his XERA is 249. Seven walks and 63 strikeouts for a, you know, I'm, not, I'm only okay at math, but that's a nine to one ratio in 40, just 40 innings. Uh, you know, that'll play anytime. And he's also more than the one inning closer. They've worked him, you know, a ton. He's got six wins and 18 saves. And, you know, that's 24 quote unquote decisions in 40 games, uh, 36 innings. But, you know, they're willing to go to him for four or five outs, which come playoff time is, uh, it was another selling point. Now, the issue here, like, you know, Jock and I, again, we're texting back and forth this week during the uh, the Red Sox-Angels series. And sure, while they could get a they could get a premium package back for Iglesias here, even as a rental, the issue becomes, as you were saying with the Rangers, you know, what's the Angels contending window? And Iglesias is a free agent, but you got to assume the Angels want to win now or at least win next year with Trout, Otani, Rendon, like you said, is their core of their lineup. And you know, they've got those guys locked up for a couple more years, and you don't want to waste it. They've already wasted a whole chunk of Mike Trout's prime, and you kind of want to stop doing that. But if you sell Iglesias at the trade deadline, you're just going to end up having to go out and sign another closer if you're trying to win this winter because you don't have anybody else coming up through the minors or in that bullpen right now who's an obvious option to take over. So it seems to me that the first conversation the Angels should be having is with Iglesias' agent right now to find out if there's – common ground for an extension and if there's not then i guess you trade them rather than just lose them at the end of the year but given where the angels are in the contending cycle you know they they should want to retain Iglesias if they possibly can having said that i think there's a belief in a lot of parts of baseball that closers can be made rather than born and it it could be that maybe the solution if you're 
the angels and somebody makes you a really good offer for Iglesias is you have to suck it up and take it and maybe hope to get back a prospect that you think could be groomed into that closer role or, you know, take a look at the sure. free agent market for the secondary guys who there's a million of them every year, those kind of Lima type guys that you could maybe instead of having a closer, you could have a committee, you know, leverage thing like they tried to do in Minnesota. There's all kinds of possibilities and it's really interesting. Uh, I guess the question is when who who's going to be the first uh, shoe to drop in this in this trade season com- that's coming up and it should be heating up pretty rapidly here over the next couple of weeks and uh, once the first closer goes I think the pressure's really going to be on the second. That's right. And conceptually, I agree with you about you know closers being you know grown off the scrap heap or whatever is a much more efficient way to do it. And I don't want to be too hard on the Angels organization because I know. It's a new it's a new brain trust with with Perry Manasian, et cetera. But the long term track record of the Angels is they have not shown any ability to do what you were just describing, right? So yes, <laughs> you know there are te- there there are teams that are good at that, and teams that you know I guess aren't aren't good at that until they prove otherwise. And I think that's the bucket I have the Angels in right now. But it, I think in the offseason, they acquired guys like Steve Sishek and Tony Watson. These are guys who have had some success as closers or as high leverage relievers in the past. Maybe they look at those type of guys and say, it's a place to start. You know, meanwhile, yeah. while we see what else we can gin up. And your, your, and your notion of, you know, in making sure that you get a couple of live arm, live arm relievers back in an Iglesias package is entirely reasonable, too. That's, a, that's certainly a way you could play it. Well, very interesting week. Uh, As always, Ray, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you again on uh, Tuesday for the Fantasy Roundtable mid-season edition with Todd Zola, and then we'll talk to you again next Friday, as always, for the American League News. That roundtable is always my favorite hour of the otherwise interminable All-Star break, so I look forward to it. (laughs) All right, Ray, thanks very much. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. You've been covering bullpens, Doug, for a number of years at BaseballHQ.com and writing the Bullpen Buyer's Guide column. And I read and hear lots of fantasy baseball experts, lots of fantasy managers, saying it's just getting harder and harder to know what to do with modern baseball usage in the bullpens. How does this year fit into what you've seen over the last few years? Well, I think that the problem we talked about earlier, where there's only nine pitching slots, um, and saves are really spread out among many more pitchers than ever before. And maybe not than ever before, but certainly since the, the seven. And so um, people who are used to having that one or two guys that are just save, 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 you know, for their teams, there are some guys like that. But on the whole, you know, it's just spread out much, much more. And, and so fewer saves are probably rostered now than they have been, you know, in the last five to 10 years. And that is difficult because if you're trying to win that category, um, you can pick up a guy thinking he's going to be a closer and he doesn't get a save for three, four weeks. You know, you're, you've just kind of right wasted that slot. So that's the difficulty. 
at the draft, where do you come down on the whole, I'm going to get a top closer to be competitive versus I'm going to grab a bunch of cheap second tier guys and, and set up guys and that kind of thing and try to build and hope for the best? Yeah. So this year, um, I, before this year, I would try to be chintzy on uh, saves and I would try to pick guys up in season or get somebody cheap at the end of a draft. This year, I decided I would go into leagues um, getting a bona fide guy that I thought would last the year and then get a second that is chintzy and end of the draft and just sort of see how that played out. And um, I've had some success with, um, you know, I got um, Edwin Diaz in a few leagues that way, and he's been fine. Obviously, Kirby Yates, who I mentioned before, was not fine. Bad pick. Good Lord. Didn't even play. Um, who else do I have? Oh, um, Will Smith's worked out fine with the Braves. I've been happy with that pick. Um, but then, you know, like like in labor, I have, um, I have um, Diaz, but I also got Hector Neris who for, you know, a couple months was okay. And then I backed him up with um, with Archie Bradley and um, Jose Al- Alvarado um, on the reserves. And, you know, it's just been a flat disaster um, of late. And so they're really kind of unusable and scrambling just to not have them blow up my ERA and whip. So these are the kind of trials and tribulations I think that these, these teams create, you know, um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of teams like Arizona where there just is, isn't even anybody rosterable. So um, it, it's just different. And, of course, a team like Arizona, there's not that many saves to go around anyway, and which further precludes you from looking there as a source of saves. You mentioned Philadelphia, just to divert for a second. What about Ranger Suarez? <laughs> well, that kind of tells you how they're doing, right? Like that, like they, they're looking around, they're like, well, the next save is going to be Ranger Suarez. And you say, geez, like how – how bad is that? And and do you really want to roster Ranger Suarez? Well, I promise you that all kinds of people are out there uh, rostering Ranger Suarez and outbidding each other to get him. And uh, good luck with that lasting more than a week or two. I mean, you know, any reliever can go on a little string. We've seen that, but that's what it would take because he's not the skill set you really want. In your most recent column, Doug, you looked at the Baseball HQ projections for the rest of the season, and you called out the top five by projected saves, then a middle seven by projected saves, then a last four with limited saves but top skills. How did you decide upon this structure to analyze the bullpen situation? Yeah, I always, every every column I do starts out with me using filters to determine who is going to be in the column. And then after that, I kind of organize it. And in this case, um, I just, uh, the only filter I used was dollars second half. <laughs> and so then once I did that, I just picked out the top guys and then I, 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 I put them in, you know, different categories based on, you know, similar situations. So that's how they got organized. At the top of the table, you have a guy who has not looked like 16 saves might be coming. Our oldest Chapman of the Yankees has given up 10 runs in his last five appearances including, I think, one game, the Angels, he gave up four runs and got on a single out, and then he gave up three to the Mets, didn't get anybody out. He's given up seven hits and nine walks over that span, and his ERA is up to almost five, and that's not counting a blown save at Minnesota. How concerned are you at this point about Aroldis Chapman and his projection, and how interested are you in the Chad Greens of the world? Um, I am very concerned, and I am starting to get very interested in the Chad Green. I... Uh, I was watching um, a broadcast 
Um, and, you know, pretty respected guy was saying all Aroldis Chapman has to do is stop throwing the slider and just, um, you know, fire that fastball, you know, at the velocity you can throw it. And then I looked at the stats and he's getting killed on fastballs. I mean, he's throwing it center cut and people are hitting it for home runs or hitting it for doubles or, you know, and his, his and, and really what's getting him too is his command is poor. Like he's, he's got some mechanical problem because he's walking a lot of guys. This is reminiscent of when he first started with the Reds where he had, you know, really, and I don't know if he has the stuff he had then, but then he had great stuff, but he would walk too many guys and then get himself in trouble and get behind and then have to throw some center cut fastball. And that seems to be what's happening. He's getting behind. And he's either walking them or he's giving up, you know, he's just saying, well, we'll see what happens. And it ends up being a double or a homer. So maybe he'll figure it out. But, um, you know, you hate to you hate to have um, that guy on your roster and try to figure out what to do because you're not throwing away or all Chapman. But you're also eating a huge like his his June was just catastrophic. He was great before that. June was catastrophic. In that middle tier where you had uh relievers with at least 10 saves projected and at least $10 of projected value. The name that jumped out at me was Diego Castillo in Tampa, just because it seems to me that nobody's ever really the closer in Tampa and anything goes. You talked about that earlier in a general sense, but they might be the poster child for that whole philosophy. Why do you think we should be as confident in Castillo as, say, Craig Kimbrell's in in that same tier who seems much more solidly entrenched? Yeah, well, Kimbrough has uh, 20 saves, and Castillo has 12. Um, but the thing that I really like about Castillo is that um, Tampa typically has three or four guys that all have about the same amount of saves, maybe maybe three guys. Um, that's not happening this year. They're using Castillo almost um, not exclusively, not like the Cubs, certainly, but um, he's getting way more than his fair share of saves um, with Nick Anderson's injury and with the other guys. I'm um, in that bullpen, not stepping up. And you see what you kind of see is that they keep um, acquiring guys like the guys they got from Milwaukee and they're just sort of playing around with different roles and figuring out who can do what. But Castillo's kind of been the rock of that bullpen. And I don't know why that would change. I don't know that you're going to get the same save total that Kimbrel will give you, but um, I do think that he's going to be plenty good and deliver that value. What I was thinking is my concern with anybody in Tampa would be they're very willing, they're among the leaders in baseball in always having been very willing to play leverage rather than save situation. And that raises the possibility that maybe the key situation in a game is in the eighth and they're, they're going to use their best guy as they've proved that they're perfectly willing to do. And the saves opportunity once the dust settles and the two, three, four guys or the three, four, five guys have been dealt with by Castillo, the save opportunity just flops into the path of the next guy and he gets a, you know, one of those protecting a two run lead against the seven, eight, nine guys. Yeah. I think the guy that they like in that leverage role has been, um, Andrew Kittredge has done a lot of that. He's also been a like a starter, like a, a weird starter. Um, Peter Fairbanks is back. I think he's going to be a guy who's they're going to use in leverage. And then they seem to really like Drew Rasmussen that they got from Milwaukee. He hasn't really started out the way that um, that they'd hoped, but you know he has really good peripherals too. And one thing they do is they acquire just incredible skill sets. It's almost ridiculous the amount of depth that they have and guys that they can put in these different roles. I think they sort of like Castillo as the closer, though, instead of in, uh, you know, in the seventh inning. And, and, it, and it's borne out by his usage this year. I mean, he's 
he's very much been the closer this year compared to previous years. So it's, uh, I think for the year, he's pretty safe in that role. In the lowest tier, you had relievers with fewer than 10 projected saves, but values between 8 and $13. And one of those guys was Giovanni Gallegos of St. Louis. I have him on, on a couple of rosters, and it's been really disappointing that he clearly has tremendous skills, much better than Alex Reyes. Alex Reyes has 20 saves. Yeah, I mean, Alex Reyes is living a charmed life this year. There's really no other way to put it because his uh, peripherals have not been very good all year long, and um, but he's converting. You know, one of the things that we have as a tool that that I that I look at all the time is just clean appearances. And um, Reyes is, you know, I mean, he's just not very good. I mean, but he uh, he converts the saves, and that is. You know, if you're the if you're the Cardinals, what are you going to do? You're going to say, okay, well, Gallego's going to get the saves. Who's going to get through leverage? I mean, not, not Reyes. You don't want to put Reyes in with second and third and one out because those runs will score for sure. I mean, it's just uh, it just is what it is for them. But they're you know they're thin. The bullpen as a whole is thin, and Gallegos is trying to you know do it all. I mean, I I don't know what more he could do, but I don't think you're going to see him getting saves unless Reyes completely. Um, falls apart, which his skill set says he should eventually. I mean, I, I guarantee you this time next year, if we're talking, we're not talking about Reyes. Wow, look at him. He's gone two whole years getting saved. No way. Not with that skill. I wonder also, if you look in detail at the game logs, whether Reyes has just been getting into a lot of what we would probably consider easy save situations rather than challenging ones which I guess you could look at by the leverage index, but the leverage index itself is affected by the lateness of the game. So in any ninth inning appearance has a little higher leverage index than any you know similar eighth or seventh inning one. I wonder if Alex Reyes is just being the beneficiary of going out there and getting a relatively easy job done. Well, I, I you know, I, I, we've seen guys like this do this from time to time. I mean, the number of innings we're talking about are not that high. Let's, let me look at it. I can see it. Um, 40. So he's had 41 innings so far this year. I mean, anybody can, that is a major league pitcher at this level can be good for 41 innings. I mean, it's not that that's not, you know, it's happened before it'll happen again. Um, but I just, you know, the skill set catches up eventually and it's just a matter of when, but yeah, I mean, he's, He's doing fine. I mean, he's actually had had a better June than he had uh, April and May. So, you know, it's m- less likely than ever that he's given up that role. But all it's going to take is, uh, you know, a couple weeks of uh, Hector Neris-like terribleness and um, it could be a change. They can't really afford to do otherwise. Jonathan Loezaga of the Yankees also made this part of the list despite no projected saves. Uh, the skill set must be out of this world. Well, he's in an it's interesting. He has a very difficult role for the Yankees in that he's throwing multiple innings. If a guy has a short start, he has to go in and be that long reliever. He gets a spot start every once in a while when they're forced into it. So his role is very, very difficult. And he's just um he's just sailing on through. I mean, he's just absolutely killing it so far this year. So I can understand why the projection would would say that he has that kind of value because of the ERA, the whip and the and the strikeouts, and he's a and, and he's going to vulture some wins as well. I mean, he's just a valuable guy to have. Um, and I'm I'm actually a little surprised that the Yankees just don't make him a starter, but but they have not. So, 
I was going to say that if Aroldis Chapman continues to struggle, people might start looking at a guy like Loezaga and say, hmm, this might be a potential closer. But at the same time, he's been so valuable for the Yankees in the role that you've just described that maybe they'd be uh, unwilling to change horses in midstream when he's one of the horses that's you know safely swimming the stream. Well, that's the problem with Green as well. I mean, Green is important where he is, too. So if you're the Yankees, you don't want to disrupt Eliza Go or Green. You want to say, okay, um, who else do we have? You go in there and try and get the save. And, you know, that's kind of a weird situation, but it's not unheard of. And, you know, I think the teams are real coming to the realization that the actual save is not as important as, you know, just keeping them off the scoreboard, you know, in the seventh and eighth as well. I mean, it's it's all situational and when the hot hitters are, or best hitters are coming to bat and, you know, how do we, how do we deploy our relievers to make that happen? I read somewhere an article that said, when you're looking in situations like this, take an eye uh, on the triple A team and see if there's anybody who's uh, a, a starter nominally, but who could come up in an emergency the way David Price did a few years ago in the playoffs for Tampa and just dominate for an inning here and an inning there, because it's not even a dirty little secret anymore. Saving games is not that hard. You know, it, uh, we used to talk about guile and makeup and all of these kind of intangibles, but basically you just need a guy who can get up there and get three outs. And it's not always that difficult. Yeah, the skill is actually consistency, right? It's the ability to throw strikes when you want to throw strikes and the ability to kind of manipulate hitters. And you know, that consistency is what's critical. I mean, there's guys who can strike a lot of guys out but give up home runs, and that's not going to get it done. you got to have guys who can, you know, just consistently get through those innings, and that consistency is what's so so elusive. BaseballHQ.com, of course, encourages readers to comment on the stories that are written by the various writers at the site, and a couple of commenters on this story noted some seemingly solid guys that didn't make any of your three lists, including Kenley Jansen of the Dodgers, Mark Melanson of San Diego having a terrific year, and Matt Barnes of Boston, also pretty productive. Where did those pitchers come up short of making your lists? Well, I only filtered by um, dollars, so they fell short in projected dollars. And I can only say that for... Um, Jansen and Melanson, I think, yeah, funny how they rhyme. <laughs> you need Eric Hansen uh, in there. It really, it comes down to their skill sets, right? I mean, they're not, they're not the top of the line skill sets, just like Alex Reyes is not a top of the line skill set. And I think that, uh, the projections don't give them, you know, that we're not doubling their first half and saying that's going to happen again. We're saying, here's, here's their skill set and here's what gets projected from that. In Barnes's case, I actually think his skill set is terrific, but he started sharing his saves with uh, Adam Adovito. And, you know, over the last month there, you know, one has six and one, and they both have six because Adovito got one last night. So, you know, that's, so he's in a job share and that's not going to get, you know, likely get the, you know, up to the $10, um, you know, amount. And that's, that's all it is. I just said, okay, well, what are the relievers have uh, are projected to get earn ten dollars in the second half, and everybody else is out. So that's why those three didn't make that list. In the previous column, Doug, you did some speculating on how the second half might shake down in some various unsettled bullpens, and we'll start in Cincinnati, where you mentioned that Heath Hembry has snuck onto the radar. What's the latest going on in Cincinnati, where they've had a lot of bullpen trouble? Well, Heath Hembry, it's almost like um, Ranger Suarez, right? Like, what kind of skill set do you really want 
But on the other hand, you know, he's going to get saves in the short term. So you see everybody kind of trying to outbid each other on Eve Hembry. Um, Hembry, though, had a pretty good um, June, um, honestly, and has not been terrible this year. But, you know, he, he got into big trouble last night against the Royals. That's not very exciting. And, you know, I do think that when um, and if um, TJ Anton and Lucas Sims comes back, they'll push Hembry back, you know. But um, in the short term, he's, he's as good as, you know, the Reds just have a, a collection of guys they got off the waiver wire. So, I mean, um, how excited can you really be about that grouping? Other than Amir Garrett, you know, he, he, he actually came up with the Reds. And he's been just like the guys who came off the waiver wire. In Miami, their closer, Yimi Garcia, was at one point sporting a 6.48 ERA. He's since brought it down to the mid-350s, but he still has dubious skills. What's the deal in Miami, do you think, with Garcia seemingly on shaky ground? Yeah, the problem with uh, Garcia is um, he gives up too many home runs, and that's because he has an extreme fly ball um, rate. And that it's very hard to be consistent when you have an extreme fly ball rate, even in Miami. Um, but he had a really good start to the year, and then it's just sort of gone south since. Um, people um, yesterday on online were talking about Anthony Bender because he got a save against the Dodgers. Um, maybe that Anthony Bender can do something like that. But then last night, um, you know, in the ninth inning um, of what looked like it was going to be and turned out to be an extra inning game, um, Yimmy Garcia was in the ninth, which kind of indicates that the manager at least still sees him as the guy. But he's certainly on shaky ground. And with the fly ball rate, I'm always worried about, um, you know, how long that guy's going to last. Is there any potential, Doug, when we're chasing after saves, to look at the also-ran teams like Baltimore and Cleveland and Detroit where those situations seem a little unsettled, but there's going to be so few wins that we don't expect a ton of save opportunities, even if you pick the right guy? Yeah, well, I would separate out Cleveland. I think that they have Emmanuel um, Class and um, James Karinchak. Both are, are exceptional and very valuable uh, relievers, and so – you know, and they're kind of in a job share with their saves right now, but I would be happy to have either of those two guys, um, much like um, Matt Barnes, you know, and so I like them um, both. As far as Baltimore goes, how long, uh, what was it, three weeks ago when everybody's like, oh, we got to get Paul Fry, you know, Cesar Valdez got hurt, we got to get Paul Fry, he's the guy. I mean, Paul Fry didn't get it, um, you know, he hasn't had a save in a, in a month and his, you know, his ZRA is terrible, or his XCRA at least is terrible. I mean, you know, so it's difficult. But, um, you know, you have to speculate somewhere and, or give up the category. I mean, you can't just, uh, you know, not everybody owns um, Edwin Diaz, I guess. So you have to get somebody. And so, uh, you know, if you haven't got, if you're doing it on the cheap, then Baltimore and Detroit are in play and you're just going to have to cycle through. I think the flavor of the month right now in Baltimore is Cole Solcer. Um, you remember him from the beginning of last season when he blew up and was terrible. So, you know, there's chances that will happen again. And I think in Detroit, it's come down to Jose Cisnero, um, who is just not that good. So, I mean, you know, you're you're kind of saying I'm going to trade some ERA and whip in hopes of getting some incremental save. And the minute that this guy loses his job, I'll jump on the next. I mean, that's kind of what you have. What about the risk that if you go after a reliever in one of these uh, lesser teams, that the guy that you, even if you pick correctly, and somebody has a nice run as a closer and picks up some saves, 
there's a risk that that would mean he becomes an interesting trade target for the other better teams in the league, and you have the closer for two weeks, and then you have somebody else a set-up guy. Yeah, I think you're describing Ian Kennedy in Texas and uh, Richard Rodriguez in Pittsburgh. I mean, those are the two guys that I think of that uh, fit that. Maybe Craig Kimbrell fits that, which would be shocking um, to his owners, but I do think that that's possible with the Cubs uh, – you know, I what they've lost 11 in a row. Um, so, you know, that's not going very well. Um, those are guys who could, you know, if Craig Kimbrell ends up on um, on the Astros, is Kimbrell going to be the closer or is Presley going to be the closer? I mean, that's wild, right, to think about, but it's possible. Um, and maybe the Kimbrell sets up uh, Presley and loses all, you know, all of the save. So, yeah, that risk is real. Um, it's much more obvious and apparent to me with guys like Kennedy and Rodriguez, who would certainly not close for contenders. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think that if you got um, Ian Kennedy in the first place, you probably have gotten more out of him than you deserved any. Playing with house money at this point, that's right. Uh, in Minnesota, they seem to be using a sort of committee made up of Taylor Rogers, Hansel Robles, and a lot less often Tyler Duffy. But Robles has a 4.38 ERA that's pretty well supported by ERA estimators like FIP and XFIP and uh, XERA at Baseball HQ. And he's got a 141 whip, a 9% strikeout minus walk. These don't seem like closer-worthy skills. And he's really been struggling lately, last three saves, it came in a six-game stretch. I looked this up, uh, 1350 ERA, 225 whip in his last six games. Gets three saves, but he kills your ratios, as you were saying before. How long do you think that Minnesota can keep using Hansel Robles in high-leverage situations? Yeah, I think that their uh, philosophy of their bullpen all revolves around Taylor Rogers being a left-hander and being a really good left-hander. Um, and so what they do is they kind of look on the other team's um, lineup and say, okay, here in the late innings is where I need to deploy Taylor Rogers, whether it's seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. It just depends on where they're showing up, you know, in, in those late innings of close games. And so Rogers is going to get the save if it's appropriate. He's not going to get the save if it's not. And so then once you've decided where you're deploying Taylor Rogers, then you have to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of it. And that's where Robles comes in. I think that they, um, you know, I think they would try different guys if they thought they could do the job. Um, they, they tried um, Caleb Thielbar, I think, the other day, and he gave up a home run immediately. I mean, it's just it's just how it's been for the Twins this year. And so Robles is kind of getting away with it um, only because everyone else around him has, has fallen down just as much or more. And it's a shame because – I think the team is a really good team. They're just, uh, they're just missing like one or two guys, and they could, you know, it's too late, I think, to make a run this year. But I think they're only missing like one or two guys to being back to being a playoff type uh, team. Meanwhile, uh, Alex Colomay, who pitched himself out of the closer job early in the season, has a 159 ERA, 106 whip in his last six outings. Any chance Alex Colomay can sneak back into the mix? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, we were talking about Yemi Garcia earlier. I think that these te- or, you know, Baltimore or Detroit. I mean, I think that um, I think managers have to kind of say, OK, ahead of this game, this is how I'm going to deploy my relievers, to take the best advantage of what I have. And it's it's always fluid. Right. It's changing. And one guy's getting hot. The other guy's losing his mechanics. One guy gets nicked up, but can still be used. But he's not going to be as effective. I mean, it, you know, and it, it, if. If managers had a crystal ball, they'd always use the right guy. But um, 
you know, it, 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 that's not how it works. And so, yeah, I mean, if he stays hot, I, I could easily see him getting back in the mix. Um, that's why they got him in the first place, you know, was to, to fill that role. Very low strikeouts, though, and that always worries me about a closer. Well, it's hard to stay consistent. You need to be able to strike guys out in order to have clean innings. I mean, that's, that's, there's just no way around. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Doug Dennis from BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some slumps, dumps, pumps, and jumps. In honor of your expertise at the BaseballHQ.com bullpen buyer's guides, let's just look at closers for the balance of the season, and we'll start with a slump, a closer who is struggling but worth hanging on to. Well, I'm going to say Aroldis Chapman. We've already talked about him. I don't know how you could do otherwise. I mean, you can't let go of Aroldis Chapman. Um, but on the other hand, man, he has been just horrible. Um, he has a, like an over nine XCRA over the last month. So. That is obviously not what you want to have to hang on to. If you have any ability to reserve him um, and have something else useful plugged in there, which I think most people probably don't, um, you know, then then I would do that. But, you know, I, it'd be very, very hard to just dump or all this Chapman at this point. How about a pump? This is a closer who's overachieving, in your opinion, and could be worth selling high. Yeah, I would. So we've already talked about Alex Reyes. We have talked a little bit about Ian Kennedy. I think Kennedy's having a very good year, but I do think he's going to get traded off the taxes. I mean, there's no reason for them to keep him um, given the season they're having. So he would probably be the, the guy that if I had him, I would trade him. And in fact, I did have him and I did trade him. <laughs> How about a dump? Uh, this is an underachiever that will not rebound and is worth replacing. Yeah, well, I have uh, Hector Neris on a couple of my teams, and at first I thought, well, I'll just put him under slump. But then I looked a little closer and thought, why have I not traded him already? He is um, not tradable now, and I probably will have to dump. And finally, how about a jump reliever? This is somebody who should be a pickup target if he's available in a league. Gosh, I mean, I'm trying to picture the league where something useful is available, but... Um, you know, I think the guys we've kind of talked about where you're just kind of cycling through fit that, you know. So yeah. if you have the ability to, you know, last week it was Heath Hember, you know, and, um, you know, the week before that it was, um, I think next week it's or this coming week it's going to be Anthony Bender. I mean, it's uh, every week there's a new guy that you just sort of pick up and pray that he's not going to blow you up and then he blows you up and you pick up a different guy. I mean, that just seems to be how it's going this year. But, uh yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think those are the guys. Maybe Anthony Bender this week because he's just had such a good. Um, but you know, he's only thrown twenty six innings so far. You know, he could go on uh, and have five terrible outings, and then it'd be like, yeah, that was uh, that was what that was Anthony Bass, right? So I mean, you know, beat continues. <laughs> How about a, a closer who might be available on the trade market rather than in the free agent pool? Is there anybody you think that could be a good buy low? Um. I'll tell you, I really like um, Oakland's closer. I'm not sure that his owner would ever trade him, but um, he's just been okay skills-wise across the year, but he's been better of late. And he um, and, and Jake um, Diekman has actually fallen off. So I kind of really like Lou Trevino, and if I could trade for him, I might um, try to do it. But it depends, you know, as always with every trade, it depends on what you have to give up. But he's a guy that I... I, like, I also really like Scott Barlow. 
I've been beating Scott Barlow drum as long as I can remember. It looks like he's finally getting a chance to save some games. So that's a great skill set to have. And if you add saves to that, he's uh, he's awesome. I, I would love to have Scott Barlow. Doug Dennis's slump is a role as Chapman of the Yankees, his pump, Alex Reyes and Ian Kennedy, a dump, Hector Neris on many of my teams as well, and his jump relievers pick up Lou Trevino or Scott Barlow in trade if you can, and otherwise just target the Anthony Benders of the world. Uh, Doug, this has been terrific. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Doug Dennis. I am on Twitter at DougDennis41, or you can read my Sunday column at Baseball HQ. All right, Doug, uh, as I said, it's been a lot of fun, very interesting, very informative. Do appreciate it, and I look forward to talking with you soon. All right, thanks for having me on. Doug Dennis is the Bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. We'll take a quick break here, then we're coming back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to tell you about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, Ray Murphy and Brent Hershey look at how to handle the increasingly complicated Trevor Bauer situation. In the Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at base performance value leaders in the full season that started in July of last year through the end of June this year. And spoiler alert, Jacob deGrom, really good. In a forthcoming Facts and Flukes performance validation, analyst Mike Werner looks at five American leaguers, Fran Reyes, Jake Odorizzi, Austin Hayes, Jonathan Loizaga, and Mike Zanino. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in Brad Coleman's Market Pulse. There's injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. And of course, groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections that are updated every day. We have daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues are why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth thinking about for a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Pittsburgh first baseman Mason Martin is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He doesn't receive much publicity, but could surprise if he rounds out his overall game, according to Baseball HQ's 2021 Minor League Baseball Analyst, and we couldn't agree more. Here's why. Drafted the 17th round of 2017 when he was 18. You were waiting for 17 years old right there, weren't you? Now 22-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates first baseman, Mason Martin has already demonstrated prodigious power in the minors. Through 49 games, Martin currently leads the Altoona Curve, Pittsburgh's AA affiliate, in home runs with 15. In fact, Martin's 15 home runs ranks near or at the top of all of AA. Wow. Yet Martin strikes out a lot, approximately 36% of his at-bats, 
That's why 22-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates power-hitting first baseman Mason Martin, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league and especially in keeper leagues. Even so, a closer look shows that Mason Martin is seeing over four pitches per plate appearance on average, a high number, think of a 3-1 count, etc., yet does not walk often. So despite seeing over four pitches per plate appearance on average and belting 15 home runs, Martin has only walked 13 times. In other words, Martin sees a lot of pitches as homered more times he has walked. On that basis, it would seem that Martin is hunting his pitch to drive over the fence in every at-bat, potentially resulting in a lower batting average and a lower on-base percentage. So exercise caution. Digging deeper, something we love to do at BaseballHQ.com. Martin's subpar 65% contact ratio when coupled with his batting eye ratio of under 2, ouch, suggests his 270 batting average in 2021 will likely fall in the not-so-distant future, according to the tools and analytics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. However, Martin cracked 35 home runs and was credited with 129 runs batted in in 2019 before the pandemic shut down the minor leagues in 2020. On that basis, it might not be unreasonable to view Mason Martin as, and his prodigious power as a true two-outcome player, with one of those true outcomes perhaps being the difference between winning and losing when you consider adding 22-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates power-hitting first baseman Mason Martin as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about rolling out the barrels. I was noodling through the StatCast batter tables over at BaseballSavant.com the other morning, clicking on the column headers to rank and reverse rank the various categories, like max and average exit velocity, hard hit percentages, and barrels. Now the thing about barrels is that it's not exactly a real StatCast metric. That is, it's not based directly on the data generated by StatCast, Doppler radar, high-def video, computers, and what have you. Rather, it's a manufactured metric. According to MLB's StatCast glossary, the barrel classification is assigned to batted ball events whose comparable hit types, in terms of exit velocity and launch angle, have led to at least a 500 batting average and a 1500 slugging percentage since StatCast was implemented Major League-wide back in 2015. So to be barreled, a batted ball must have an exit velocity of at least 98 miles an hour, and then also a launch angle between 26 and 30 degrees. Then, for every added mile per hour of exit velocity, the range of launch angles expands by 2 or 3 degrees. So, a 98 mile an hour velocity batted ball is considered barreled if it's hit within 26 to 30 degrees, as I said. A ball traveling 99 miles an hour earns barreled status in a 7 degree range, 25 to 31 degrees. Get it up to 100, it's barreled in the 10 degree range between 24 and 33 degrees. And so on we go, up to 116 miles an hour, where the range is 43 degrees. Anything between 8 degrees and 50 is considered barreled when you hit it that hard. Okay, so StatCast has three barrel metrics. 
the number of barrels the hitter has produced, just the raw N number, the percentage of barrels out of all batted ball events, and barrels as a percentage of all plate appearances. I figured just the number of barrels isn't much use, since it would obviously be affected by how often the player gets to hit and how often he hits the ball into play, so I ignored that one. And Similarly, I can see how barrels per plate appearance could be illustrative, but it seems like it's illustrative of two different things, how often the batter hits the ball and then how often he barrels it. So if you have high strikeout guys, they get a penalty because of how often they guarantee a non-barrel event by striking out or walking for that matter, so I decided just to click the column header for barrels per batted ball event, just to see who's at the top and the bottom of the table. The cream definitely rose to the top, as the list shows essentially every big gun hitting in the big leagues. The top guy, Shohei Otani, at 26% of his batted ball events, that's rounded, followed by Fernando Tatis, Aaron Judge, Ronald Acuna, Joey Gallo, Kyle Schwarber, Vladimir Guerrero, Rafael Devers, Max Muncy, and Pete Alonso, Adolis Garcia, and Adam Duvall, all tied for 10th on the list at 16%. My first thought was, that's quite a gap within even the top 10. Otani at 26%, all the way down to a three-way tie at 16%, that's a 10 percentage point gap over 10 slots. And for that matter, the gap from Otani to Tatis in second place is five full points. So my conclusion from these data, Otani's really good at hitting the ball hard, and that's the kind of detailed analysis you can only get here at Baseball HQ Radio. But let's be honest, had I started this whole exercise by asking you what Otani, Tatis, Acuna, and Guerrero had in common, you'd probably have come up with, they all hit the ball hard. So it does at least pass the eye test, even none of it is exactly surprising. But some names near the top of the list were at least a little surprising. Number 13, Brandon Crawford at 16%. Number 27, Willie Adamas at 13%. Number 35, Dansby Swanson at 12%. And in a kind of reverse surprise, Juan Soto, who you'd think would be right up at the top of the table, is actually down at number 41 at 11%. That's barely above the median rate, which is about 9.5. These data led me to the possibly premature conclusion that all the good hitters are perforce also the top barrel guys, and all the top barrel guys are the best hitters. And that led me to a hypothesis that the lowest barrel rate guys would also be the worst hitters. Not so fast there, Sherlock. I clicked the barrel rate column header to reverse the order, and at first I was pretty sure my hypothesis was right. The top guy on the list, that is the bottom guy on the list, was David Fletcher, sporting a 2021 barrel rate of zero. Yes, that's right. 300 batted ball events, Fletcher had met the barrel requirements not even once. Other names down in this netherworld of low barrelage are Kevin Newman, Elvis Andrews, Jose Iglesias, Ahmed Rosario, and the clearly struggling Glaber Torres. A lot of shortstops on that list. But the bottom 20% of the list, the lowest 26 batters among the 129 qualified, also includes these names. All-star second baseman Adam Frazier at just 1.4%. Four barrels in 295 batted ball events. All he's doing is hitting 326 with a 400 on-base percentage and an 850 OPS. Top drawer fantasy earner Whit Merrifield, 3.3%. How about Yuli Gurriel, 3.6%. Despite his current slash line of 319, 385, 485, that's an 870 OPS and he's got 10 home runs. And listen to this, Gurriel has never had a barrel rate over 4% in six seasons in the big leagues. 
We have former batting champions DJ LeMahieu at 4% and Tim Anderson at 5% and Alex Verdugo at 6% and all he's doing is hitting 276 with a 771 OPS. Now one thing that all of these hitters have in common is low, very low, or extremely low strikeout, whiff, and chase rates. These are guys who put the ball into play a lot, and that's not nothing. Some of them, like Gurriel, LeMahieu, and Verdugo, are also above or well above average in the exit velocity and hard hit frequency metrics. It seems like what these hitters might have in common is just hitting the ball hard, but not having the launch angles that create barrels. Just lots of line drives and scalded ground balls that end up as base hits and doubles. Frazier is tied for the major league lead in doubles plus triples, and Gurriel, Merrifield, and Verdugo are all in the top 31. So my takeaway in all of this is the same takeaway we've had over the years with all of the other metrics we've used to assess players. Barrel rate is a very useful tool, but it's not universal. It has made me more interested in looking at potentially underappreciated guy like Adamas, Brandon Crawford at 16%, and even perceived underperformers like Kyle Tucker at 11 and Jorge Soler at 12, both above the median. But at the same time, it's important that I also understand a low barrel rate shouldn't disqualify a hitter from consideration. Let's face it. I'd rather have Adam Frazier on my fantasy team this season, and in fact I do, than, say, Hunter Renfro or Adam Duvall, both of whom have much higher barrel rates. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 9th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug's a terrific, very fun and interesting guy to talk to, whether it's just hanging out at First Pitch Arizona or for a podcast. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners who keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with our traditional mid-season roundtable with Todd Zola and Ray Murphy. And then back to business next Friday as usual in a Friday full edition featuring a guest expert interview with Tanner Smith, the pitching arsenal analyst at BaseballHQ.com, as well as all the other usual great stuff. That's the All-Star Roundtable Edition with Todd and Ray on Tuesday. Tanner Smith coming up next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you Tuesday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.